underscore. Now let's check the stream. Yes. Oh. That's the problem. Check the stream. The stream's working. In the profile. Okay. On LinkedIn and on Twitter. And yep. what else do you have now? Uh, YouTube. Ooh. YouTube. Okay, Messi, today you can find a bus. <laughs> kind of find? What, what did you just say, Cheryl? I say you could find us today. Yesterday yes. you could find us, right? I couldn't find it, so I was thinking, oh, okay, there's no tech news today. <laughs> I know. There is, there is. Oh! My lovely, my lovely vocalist friend is here too. You know what? She's a technology empowered singer. But she, she's too shy to come on stage because, uh, yeah, Tyler bites. But this, this is the problem, is, like, I have to be careful not to uh, scare people away who have different opinions. Because then, then it will be a scenario where it's just uh, one, you know, limited, limited views. So it needs to be much more welcoming of people with opposing views. Yeah, you mean it's for Chamber, right? <laughs> you don't want that. Yeah, exactly. That's the big, the biggest yeah. concern. That if if I'm uh, uh, happy Friday. Two, if I'm hey, happy Friday. If if um to make sure that people feel welcome to express their dissenting views and then debate them and maybe even let them win they <laughs> you know you got to sometimes uh make people feel yeah. welcome and right. yeah maybe, maybe i should and, remove and, and, i think i should yeah, remove myself why, uh, from debates no you don't have to remove yourself but i think um sometimes you really have to be very inviting you know i i was i was um sometimes i was feeling a bit like you're defending way too much facebook and i was being contrarian and then i was trying to talk to you but then you know i sometimes feel like you really were like i felt like you were like their lawyer honestly so sometimes i think yeah. um when it's like that people will get intimidated um I, I mean, I was punching back, but, but you know, not yeah, everyone I, will be able to punch back. <laughs> yes. I, I love that. I love that the people who you think are going to be, like, uh, strong often aren't. And the people who you think or assume aren't going to be strong oftentimes are. And that that's what I, one of the things I love about you, Messi, which is, like, you know, you're you're not afraid of, you know, 
even if you and I get into a debate, that doesn't really worry you. Like you have this fearlessness that I think is very uh, admirable. And and, I, and it's actually why I admire, for example, um, for example, for example, one of the things that one of the one of the global stereotypes, which is really totally untrue, is this concept that Japanese women are very subservient. Uh, and whatever, and I can assure you that they are not. That they are incredibly strong, uh, you know, in a way that is often misunderstood. And they're they're, you know, not at all the fragile creatures that uh, you know people in the West often assume that they are. So it's. You know, I, I like watching that dynamic. I like watching who the strong personalities are and not strong in the loud type because I get very loud, but strong, you know, people who can be very resilient to confrontation and resilient to, uh, you know, opposing views. Crouching tiger, hidden dragon. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. A bit of that. Yeah. Oh, oh bye. By the way, um, Tyler, Keith just back channel me. He mm. he just arrived in Tokyo, so he's in ten days quarantine now. But mm. he's in bed now, so he's he's too shy to come out today. But he'll join another day. Okay. So what what is good? So, um, okay, thank you for setting up the room. And uh, someone just DM'd to say I'm good. Controversy is good. It's boring if we all agree. Yep, that's a great point. So that is the essence of how we should you know think to optimize the debate in the room which is try to engage in debate but i'm realizing because i i need to remove myself from trying to win every debate that i engage in and let the people on the stage engage in the debate so that people uh understand that even if i go strong into a debate that i'm I, i'm doing it on the merits of the argument and i, I don't care who i'm debating I, no, uh, and and oftentimes the position I'm taking in the debate is uh, based on. I feel I will always try to debate for the. Uh, in the case of Facebook, you bring up a great point, Messi. Which is, I don't give a shit about Facebook. I don't think I. I think Facebook is, in the in a very large way, a non-positive company. I am no big friend or fan of Facebook, yet I do spend an incredible amount of time defending them because I, I really despise uh, in intellectual dishonesty in attacking uh, somebody even, for any reason. I just I hate intellectual dishonesty and I hate shenanigans in, in uh, creating, you know, gossip rumor mongering and mis misinforming people about their opponents. And it's to me, it's like this bigger grown up version of childhood playground gossip games that, you know, the Wall Street Journal is engaged in. And I hate that stuff. And even if it's if it's against Facebook, I want to call that shit out. And it's not that I'm defending Facebook per se. It's that I want to point out that the accusations are wrong and that this I want to expose the the shenanigans. To do so, it forces me to defend a company I don't really care to defend. I have no love for Facebook. 
at all. I know. <laughs> I know. It's about integrity, uh, Tyler, because if you are uh, honest and in you, you honesty is very needed, uh, you would need a lot of proof to, uh, you know, real concrete proof, not just lies right. and blaming and uh, just, you know, spewing right. words just because you hate something. Right. You need but, proof. And, and that integrity and, is lost right yeah. now. Sure, but I, I'm not a yeah, Facebook. And, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Facebook shareholder. I never have been. I never intend to be ever. And what what was the other point I would make there? I have a, about 150 friends on Facebook, and I barely engage with them. I barely use the app. So I have there, no. Just I, I say that in all transparency because I think people do get confused. Even Ellen. Ellen came to visit me in Stockholm. And one of the points she brought up in person was, you know, you do defend Facebook quite a bit. I, I do. I guess I do, but it's not by choice. If the if the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the likes were doing the exact same things against anybody, uh, I unfair in the same kind of unfair way, I would do the same thing. It's it's just peculiar that it is Facebook that I end up defending in this argument. So. Uh, but but Tyler, I think um, I mean I kind of knew that because I, I I mean I've been on this app for a very long time in this in this room in this community, so I know that you are no fan of Facebook because we have had that conversation like three four months ago. But I think also um, we also have to be conscious of not going too far out on the other side because mm -hmm. I felt that this morning and and for me is is a bit also like um, yeah there could be some bad apples um, in the in you know um, the intellectual uh, I don't know bankruptcy or whatever you were saying because I know personally and and I know even um, just from following a lot of the news, a lot of amazing reporters who are really risking their life and covering stories that yeah. otherwise would never be covered and yeah. would never be known and we will never be conscious about. And, and especially when they cover the forgotten people, just amazing work, you know, in, in a very dangerous place. And I know all of us here in this room know that there are quite few who died, you know, doing these stories. So sometimes also I feel like we go the other way and generalize the entire, you know, yeah. Um, the entire journalism uh, field, and that that also is dishonest, right? That's this is why I'm saying I always tend to be sometimes contrarian to you as well because of those, you know, generalization and going too far on the other side. Yes, so I'm I'm very I have no problem with political journalism. In fact, I think it's one of the most important things in a democracy. Like for example. And I, again, I have to tip my hat to the Swedes and the Scandinavians because the they've designed the system such that the journalists get access to every email, every expense in real time. So we had Snickerbargate, where a politician, a Swedish politician, bought a, a goddamn Klondike bar. And that's that's a tragedy. Because... That person bought a Klondike bar on with on taxpayer money. And the journalist says, wait a minute. A politician just bought an ice cream bar. It was actually a chocolate bar on 
taxpayer money. That should have been bought on personal money. And so headline news, hours later, this politician is corrupt because they just bought a $1 candy bar. And that's headline news in Scandinavia because they've designed the system so the, the journalists can see all emails, all, all of them, and all expenses, all of them, in near real time. And they are held accountable. And the journalists play this incredibly important role of holding them all accountable all the time. And that's why we have relatively very little corruption in Scandinavia. Because there's very little shenanigans and very little wasted tax. And it's a beautiful, beautiful system. And I that would not happen without the diligence of the journalists doing what they do. And they, sh- God bless them. So I yeah, got, I, even, I have, I have... I have no, yes, but. Even in business, right? That there were a a ton of very good reporters, investigative reporters, the Wall Street subprime mortgage. They were sounding the alarm. They did fact by fact. I remember the Financial Times reporter, the comedian ones, and and even the, you know, even, even in the U.S. And nobody paid attention, but those guys caught it early on. And if there was someone else paying attention, those guys knew what was happening in the financial sector with the CDOs, with those subprime mortgage, with the cheating, yeah. and this with Mozilla. And, and to me, they do play a really important factor. So we can call them, you can call them, I think, when they do terrible things, but let's just be careful not to generalize. That's all. I just, I get really riled up when their the, their focus is on their economic, direct economic competitors. And they're working together in, in a consortium to take down their economic competitor without being transparent about it. And um, I, I really hope people start to wise up to the, the funny little game that they're cooking up. So that just rubs me the wrong way, where they're doing it in a very intellectual, dishonest way. I don't, and there's, there's intellectually honest ways to take down their political opponent or economic uh, competitors, but. I don't, I don't know why they don't focus on that. Anyway, so, by the way, there was, uh, I found, and I wasn't the only one who found, uh, Donish also found a really interesting tweet thread that's getting quite popular today that I will share now, copy, before we get started on the big tech stories, on this topic that we're, you know, ranting about here. Here it is. Let me tweet it to the Tech News Twitter account, and we'll pin it to the top of the room for your convenience. Yep. Uh, so it's, it says Prasana is the name of the person on Twitter. He says today the dis- dishonest Reuters journalists uh, A.A. Ber- Berwick, Angus Berwick, and uh, E. Howcraft, Elizabeth Howcraft, published a hit piece on my dear friend Medikovin, a fellow self-made billionaire from my hometown of Chennai. As Balaji has highlighted time and again, this is a cautionary story of how reporters are unethical. And it's a, a tweet thread. It's about, Jesus, a, well, a dozen tweets long, so I won't bore you with the whole thing. 
but we just shared it at the top of the room. And uh, there, I did see this piece about Metacoven yesterday, and it it did read like a hit piece uh, in the title. That's why I didn't even cover it. Uh, we just read the headline and moved on, and I felt like they're kind of going, you know, I didn't even really dive into it. Um, but this is a personal friend of of Metacoven, and he kind of calls out the the journalists and with the receipts saying they knew this and yet they're pretending they didn't know it. And we have the facts to show that they did know this. Then they're, you know, they're playing stupid. And that's very unfortunate. They were saying that they're... You're breaking up really bad. You are in a matrix. She's in the metaverse. Yeah, try again. Try again, Sharon. No, Sharon, you have to jump out and come back in again. Okay, I thought it was my network. Okay. Oh, it was me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Funny thing with Clubhouse, I keep on checking my own it's Facebook's fault, I promise. Um, I was saying that somebody put share. Uh, the tweet was quite long. Sharon, you're in the matrix. She's in the matrix. You yeah, was quite but they said it's funny, they can't hear us when they're in the matrix. Funny how, how it sounds like it's auto-tuned. I think they got me good this time. Try again. Oh, you're it's back. Good. You're back. Yeah. Um, so that tweet, Tyler, they essentially started out, Reuters started out by saying there was funds that was depleted or misallocated. However, Prasanna was able to show that they have um, an open and transparent account of all of the funds. It really is a, a, an extreme attack on how Reuters attempted to misalign uh, this friend of his um, you should really de dive deeply into it, I think, on one day, whenever you have the, the opportunity. It's an I, interesting piece, to say okay, the least. Good. Well, let's read. I mean, the dude who wrote it seems like, I mean, just looking at his Twitter account, seems like a rather upright individual. Sharon, and, did they go after Metacoven? Yes. They did. And, they went and by after the Metacoven way, of the Metacoven, the Metaverse Fund of $60 billion, They went after him? Yep. Wow, that's ballsy. Sorry, that's ballsy. So let's read through it real fast. He says, I have seen this before with attacks on my co-founder, uh, Parker Conrad. Uh, and for those who don't know, that's the CEO of Rippling, kind of a well-known uh, individual, actually, in tech circles. And he says, tech founders are usually very open and want to freely tell their side of a story because what the fuck, it's, what the fuck is there to hide? And then they meet reporters for the first time in their life on it on a hit piece too late. First, let's talk about the dishonest claims in the article. It claims that Lend Lendroid project funds were depleted or missing. This is after they were shared in a financial statement that shows the token sale funds as accounts receivable. No mention in the article. Dishonest, dishonest or incompetent, is he's asking. That's what it always comes down to. It always comes down to shady, shady or stupid. You're either shady or stupid. You either are incompetent or you're being dishonest. That is so much of life comes down to that in 
when when there's bad actors, they either are doing it intentionally or by accident. Hence, dishonesty. Yeah, or, or, it's, or it's both. It's even both. It's can both. Be both. Yes, it's yeah. both. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then this that was first. Second, that coins. Uh, Coins E users lost money. It's an it is an exchange. Metacoven started and sold to Safe Altamini, a shady character. Easily Googleable sale doc here in 2014. Uh, after the acquisition, Safe scammed the users in in the exchange in 2016. Safe should go to jail. Okay. Next part, number four. Uh, the journalist spoke with lots of users and knew capital K-N-E-W, all caps, knew this fact, can be easily figured out from the dates of the complaints. But SAFE, a shady loser, is not a good target, so Metacoven is a successful YC founder and billionaire who can get page views. Oh, I see where this is going. Now, one might think they were just incompetent and might be a honest mistake. No, they... They are thorough as your worst enemy and only feign incompetence when there's a lot of public personal heat against the dishonest journalists, uh, in this case from Reuters. Sophisticated founders who are recipient of these hit pieces know in advance that it's coming. This is a motivated journalist calling all your friends for dirt months at a time and should usually never speak with these journalists. Metacoven initially tried that. And then they bumped him at Dreamverse underscore life conference, a Dreamverse conference, a music art technology conference, which he was organizing, first pretending that they were impressed by the conference and wanted to take pics and asked friends friendly questions. Then, after asking the friendly questions, asked the dirty questions. By then you think you could just clarify the truth like friends, which is a mistake, he says. These are not your friends, either... Even after knowing all this, they refused to include Metacoven's verbatim statements. U.S. United States was once a place where journalists wanted to really know the truth. Now, a, now as Facebook, Twitter is putting them out of jobs, they are forced to chase page views. Is this news? He asks, and then he gives a quote. Quote, a spokesman for the Monetary Authority of Singapore said it does not regulate Landroid and referred Reuters to the Singapore police force. The police said they had not received any reports regarding Lendroid. So it's not even, there's nothing there uh, from Singapore's perspective. And the title of the report is How an Indian Metaverse King Made His Fortune was the only thing missing from the article. I'll do their job and provide the real answer here. How much does one stoop for sensationalism? Mouths to feed brings out the ugliest of humans. So how to deal with parasites like this? Balaji has probably stopped there because the rest is just a how to on how to avoid it. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, so in essence, but the thing is, Metagovern is based in Singapore, and in Singapore, he doesn't have to pay any tax for capital gain. And uh, in his interview in March with uh, Straits Times. He said that he has no car, no house, and he's staying in a rented apartment in Singapore. Okay. But the point is that he had this company or and exchange, sold it to a shady individual. The shady individual is doing shady stuff. And the journalist knows there's no story in writing about some shady person nobody's heard of, that there's a much better story to be written by attaching it to the previous owner, and which is the, that's where the shady or stupid comes into play. 
So it's, it's you know, clickbait manufacturing, uh, which it's uh, it deserves further scrutiny before we really add Reuters to the shit list of activist journalism. Um, because I, that would be incredibly, uh, I, w- I, would, I would really want to make sure that's the case because Reuters is, in my book, still one of the ones who are actually still doing journalism and news, etc. And we, as we were just talking about when it comes to political scenarios, and I'm, I'm kind of a unique character. I don't live in the U.S. I haven't lived in the U.S. for many, many years. I never planned to live in the U.S., so I really don't care uh, about Republicans or Democrats. If, if people ask, you know, as, an, as a former American and people say, are you Republican or Democrat? I, I'm neither. It does, I don't live there. I have, they, that doesn't influence me in my life in any way at all. So it makes no difference to me. I'm really focused on policies. And there are certain policies I like and don't like. Uh, I really don't have any concern for the, the party and all of the crazy politics of America. I think American politics is absolutely despicable and it's an embarrassment because, hello from Sweden, where American politics is considered a comedy show in this part of Europe. We literally laugh like you're a bunch of, you know, uh, cartoon characters. It's embarrassing. It's totally, absolutely embarrassing. But America, if you want to know how the rest of the, a lot of the world especially the part of the world that is way outperforming you on every possible metric you could ever think of. Look at you like circus clowns. That's how America's perceived, just so you're aware. So I take no, and it's on, it's equally on both sides. That cartoonish craziness, ridiculousness is equally, both sides are equally responsible for that reputation. So I'm, again, I'm just trying to highlight just how detached I am from either side of, of American politics. I have, n- I have no, uh, you know, affection for either side. I, I, I hold both sides equally responsible for the embarrassment uh, of American politics globally and how it's, how it's perceived globally. So what can I say? Yeah, hold that put a couple chess pieces? Okay. Of, of course. But my point is, in saying all this, is that it's incredibly important in America today, that we have good journalism to hold politicians on both sides account. And when I say both sides, I really mean both sides. That's why I'm saying, that's why I'm explaining how detached from it I am, because I really don't care. I want both sides to uh, feel the, the, the uh, you know, what, what the, the process of journalism that I agree is of critical importance. And it's a, it's a, you know, I believe democracy, it's kind of the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post's main jam. The Washington Post, like democracy dies in darkness. I believe that. And and that's why I made that whole point about how it's done in Scandinavia. And I would love to see uh, journalists hold American politicians accountable. And for the most part, they do. And it's critically important they do. But if they turn into um, agenda jihadists, then the, that goes out the window. We can then it becomes uh, journalism itself becomes a cartoon shit show, which it is becoming, and that's what really concerns me. The politics has gone off the rails and become like a circus clown show. And now the the problem is, if the journalists were to keep the, to be the adults at the party and at the table, at the dinner table, and you know, 
at least keep everybody informed. The problem is the journalists are going right along with it and feeding into it and, and turning the, the circus clown into a dumpster fire. And that's what really concerns me because that's how the system becomes uh, fragile in my mind. And that's what that's what's really concerning me. I So that's where the bulk of my argument philosophically has come from when I'm expressing my anger towards uh, journalists is because I feel like they're not uh, they're abandoning their traditional and critically important role in in keeping a, a democracy stable yada 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 so go ahead can I can I provide a couple thank you go ahead, so David. so oh my goodness <clears throat> it is frustrating right we've been pulling our hair out for a long time here in the states so what the, the, what I'd like to offer is this there is a systemic economic <clears throat> transition that's occurred that has been the underlying problem. And what you're pointing to is the hair pulling symptom of, of like you're saying, the specific jihadist. So uh, the problem is with the rise of the social media stuff, the attention economy has just sprung to life and the business model for for local newspaper, this is not just the New York Times, right? They're just struggling. They're hoping to survive. But pretty much there's been a gutting of local newsrooms because of the business model that around this advertising thing. And so what, what do we do in a society when the business model does not provide an economic, um, you know, lifeline to in the transition to social media? to all of the local papers and there were there's there's there used to be lots of great journalism you know um <clears throat> not to say that there still isn't but the incentives are all maligned now so i would just simply put the, the you know who's responsible for that and are we going to throw our hands up to this quote-unquote free market to just resolve all our problems and i would say from my own personal experience seeing this in different industries um it, that if this occurs, that the, these types of, of uh, unintended consequences, these dire ones in this case, can happen. So, I mean, the way to fix this is to fix the business model in which who's getting the eyeballs. If you're clicking on a, a, a news headline, why is Facebook making money on that and not the local company, right? So you talk about paywalls, and all I'm saying is that it's that it's broken, and the, the the revenue is not making it back to the people who were doing the work and they've been closing shop. And so we, we're now in a very dangerous, we've been entering this dangerous new um, information kind of economy where, where the news, the, the real serious, the real honest news, there's no damn business model to support it. That's scary sh shit right there, right? Mm -hmm. So what you're pointing to is a serious symptom. And I, I could argue that in an incomplete agreement, you know that the, the symptom you're speaking to is one thing. Then the second one, rather, you did bring it up, is the politics, the sensationalism, the the the. Um, we've got serious problems, structural issues that people need to get informed and educated on. And then what happens when? I'll just you fill in the the topic of some sensational thing happened today. We're going to cover it for three friggin' days on twenty four seven cable news, and we're going to disregard every other thing that's affecting the planet and all this. So there's a uh, there there's there's some really toxic behaviors being done by just media generally, but they've been put in a squeeze, and some of them are just really off. As you, if you get into certain news outlets that that as they 
talk about, hey, we provide news and opinion and just how they cloud all that without pointing anybody out that we all are familiar with. But the fourth estate, that's what we call it. It was a gift birthed by the founding fathers of America. It is a very, very, very unique and special thing that helps a democracy. But it's on, it's on, um, I almost want to say deathbed, right, Tyler? I mean, it's, it's, it's scary. But you're pointing out, you're making a really great point. But again, to me, it's kind of, you know, going after some rich dude that is like that, that's, that's, that is true. But we have bigger problems that media is doing that that uh, that uh, like not, like the environmental like there, there's you can yeah. go online and find out how much of the coverage of, of this of, of the F the F train that we are all flying off a cliff on. How much coverage are we getting on that? How are we educating people on that? When I was a kid, Vietnam, the Vietnamese, the, the Vietnam War was on the TV and we had Walter Cronkite. And it's totally different. The trust was there, but the real hard news was there. And people, that's what really helped catalyze lots of the social movements. So, you know, but Pete Davidson's dating Kim Kardashian, everybody. That's breaking news today, too. So thanks for allowing me to just provide some level of historical context. And, you know, I, I just, we it's, it's a very serious thing. It, it's... um. But the business model for the local and regional newspapers is has been dead for 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 a while, and that's the problem. So just make sure you you got to you got to separate the symptoms from the problems, and just we got to we got to work on the problems if we want to take a, a steer of this grand ship before before we run out of time. Okay, so let's get to uh, the regular headlines as we do. And the first one off the top is that the Constitution Dow, who raised uh, $40 million to buy one of the, I believe there's only two original copies of the Constitution. One of them went up for sale on Sotheby's. They raised $40 million, but they were outbid, and the winner uh, came in at $43.2 million. So I guess all of that money will go back to each of the individuals. I was in the room this morning with uh, Jeremiah and Dr. Franson was in there too. But Jeremiah was saying that, for example, if somebody kind of uh, invested one hundred dollars worth of crypto, they have to part. They have to pay eighty eighty dollars worth of gas fee in order to transfer. So I was asking him. So if that's the case, if they want to refund it, who is going to pay for the gas fee? And actually, who is the who is the 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 winner here, who is the one who collected all the gas fees? Because you know, two and four, two and four transfer, right? Somebody probably has already made the money. Mm-hmm. Okay, Can I speak to that one just real quick, Tyler. Sure. You know, as as everybody's excited about crypto and and all of the potential liberties and all of these, you know, these really there are some great benefits to a new financial, uh, you know, technology, right? But what's not being considered. It, it, it is, people are speaking to it, but it's not being economically considered as the cost of the planet. And so our, our, the, the effect of carbon costing on our compute needs to happen, and it will be happening, y'all. Um, it's not just as simple as, hey, you know, buying offsets, which is what a lot of the industry, the, the cloud industry is doing. They are making a transition um, to more green, renewable-powered, uh, you know, providing of their service. But there are certain applications, or all applications, quite quite frankly, that we that we use on our phones, on our computers, the big awesome games we play. This you know the mining of the crypto, the art, all that. All I'm saying 
is there's a real cost and unlike the energy the fossil, cost too. That's my point. The energy cost, but it's not just the cost; it's the carbon cost related to create to powering to powering this. That's that's kind of my point. And so, just like the fossil fuel industry, they had they call it an externality, a pricing externality. We we never pay the environmental costs for the fossil fuel life that we live. As we've built an awareness around that, let's all be aware that as we're drawing power to drive these applications to do things like crypto, playing games, and just anything, really, that we need to reconcile the cost to the planet. Thanks, Tyler. And quick quick point, that's a design flaw. It doesn't have to work. Yeah, and David, I, that point is so important that why people have got to educate themselves and stop investing time, effort, and money into things that are claiming to be decentralized, claiming to do things they're not doing, uh, and really just spinning their wheels and wasting energy. So really make sure you understand what's decentralized, what's not. And if something isn't and it doesn't need a blockchain, don't use a freaking blockchain. They are so expensive to the planet, these blockchains as databases. Don't use it unless you need to use it. Super important. Thank you, Ben. Oh, my God. Big, big hug from over here in Seattle. I'm, I've been researching the green NFT, and I'm really trying to think through, is it oxymoronic or not? But, you know, content creators forever, they, they've needed entrepreneurial, you know, more skills and they need to be able to make a living at it. And so in walks in this really cool option of, of all of the blockchain stuff, which is great. We, we, there, there are ways I'm, I'm hopeful to figure it out. I am hopeful, um, but we do need to, to figure it out because it's, uh, it's just something we need to do. It's on the, the list of things. So the, Sorry, there are two classes. Uh, Sorry, go ahead, Dustin. I, I'm with you, but I have, I have heard, and I'm, I'm saying I have heard because I'm, this is not an area of my own expertise, but I have heard that most serious miners of Ethereum and Bitcoin have understood the problem and begun taking alternative energy sources and using alternative energy sources. And, I, I, and my thought process is, is that any better or worse than all the people using um, carbon offsets, you know, which as David has pointed out, and I'd like to underscore that to the nth degree, Carbon offsets are bullshit. I agree with Dr. Francine and clapping this discussion. I still can't get a PS5, guys. I think the point Dr. Francine made is, is, is really critical because the fact that they're using clean energy is, is, is part of a zero-sum environment where if they use the same clean energy to displace fossil fuel, energy that would be a net gain to the planet but just saying it's not a problem because we're using clean energy um I, I i think is like squeezing on a balloon it shows up it shows up elsewhere in the energy markets there's going to be a evol multi-phase evolution as we do this transition the first phase is building all the awareness that's that's starting but we need to accelerate it um the offsets real we, we can't completely throw it under the bus unless they don't transition. So you're spot on 1000%. But phase one is to cultivate economically the rewilding of the planet. And that's the intention of carbon offsets. So to the degree that those are truly certified and proper 
properly done, the marshlands. You, you mean you know, they're trees? They, if they plant trees. They're, well, they're, they're, well, that's the, yeah, the well, trees. Ecosystems, and functional ecosystems. Right. So that's phase one. It, 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 it's like the marsh. And there, there's a few specific ones that are kind of really high return. So to the degree that those actually happen and they're certified and all of this, that's, a, that's, the, that's the first step, right? Because it's a rewilding that's going to help reduce carbon. But offset as a, as a long-term strategy is compl- you're spot on 1,000%, Dr. Francine. It's, it's, it's bullshit. So just you know, as people start to look to offset, as you're taking your travel, you're going, you're, you're, as you're jumping on an airplane, look to try to offset as much as you can. It's new kind of behavior and then champion that behavior amongst your friends. Um, I spoke with... Uh, Somebody at Expedia over here in the Seattle area who is responsible for strategy. We were t- I was talking about that. It's like, hey, when I go to Expedia, why don't I also just why why don't you sell to 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 uh, consumers the ability to just pay for the offset? You know. So anyway, I haven't done any travel lately, so I don't know. Okay, if somebody I mean, started that doing that. I know that the big countries, huge countries, who have such huge impact and carbon dioxide uh, production have refused to take any measures. And I'm baffled at that. If you look at the amount of what they are doing and how they are contributing and fail to take any step against that, that that problem is still there. So what are we going to achieve if they continue to produce the amount that they are producing? Well, but that's a very good idea. Might be um, what everyone was just talking about. Like if when I bought an airline ticket, I had to pay for my carbon offsets or they were built into the price of the ticket, you know, or I had to plant a tree every time I bought an airline ticket. Um, I'm, I, it would make me think twice about a lot of my travel behaviors. I know a lot of my minor friends who are using to, uh, a lot of green energy, hydro energy, wind power, solar, uh, but that's a very minute amount in terms of if you compare uh, the big, huge uh, contributors towards this pollution who fail to take any action and the world is not pushing them to do anything either. COP26, you're, that's that's kind of part of what I, how I interpret what you're saying. I tell you, I'm, I'm a thousand percent on page, on the same page as you, and COP26 was very frustrating for lots of people. So you know, there's there. I, I want to prom, uh, selfishly self take the opportunity to self promote. <clears throat> I just I have my monthly events, as many as you know, um, that's why I'm in Stockholm at the moment, and the the next. One I just announced the one for uh, November 29th, which uh, I just noticed our friend Carl bought a ticket for. So it looks like Carl might be popping over to Stockholm, which I'm really looking forward to. And uh, we'll go out for dinner and do all that and take a take a selfie together or two. And the one after that will be on December. Make Carl plant a tree. He flies over there. Make him plant a tree. Well, no, he, I don't mean in an airplane. I mean, he's going to get a glider or something. So the the next one is on December 14th. And I've just decided that the theme for that one will be all about COP26 because uh, COP26 is very disproportionately attended by Scandinavians and particularly Swedes, as you can imagine, as Greta Thunberg is from Stockholm. So there's... Um, 
we're, we have a whole lot of uh, impact investors, green investors, and and all the people who went to COP26. I want to get all the, the investors and geeks and entrepreneurs together at my monthly event on December 14th to make the theme all about the follow-up to COP26 and what are we going to do and uh, help everyone who didn't attend give a really nice update on on how it went and how it should have went, more importantly, and how do we get things where we need to get it to go before COP27 next year so that uh, we don't have millions of climate refugees, you know, rushing to the borders of Poland as are already starting to happen. So, um, because we, we don't have, the time is really running out. This is really starting to get particularly urgent and we're all going to have to stop and put down whatever we're doing um, professionally and personally. <laughs> it's going to get very uncomfortable in the very near future. So that's what that event's going to be all about. I just decided that today. So anyway, um, back to the... We would like to coordinate with you, Tyler, or, or uh, have some discussions ahead of sure, that. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah hi, hi, hybrid that sucker too. Yeah. I'm sure you will. I, I would yeah, love, right on. yeah, I would love Eli for you to jump in, especially if it's about the atmospheric or, um, to, yeah, if you think whatever you think would be valuable to share, you're you're welcome to. So, well, there, there's 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 three specific things, but uh, beyond that, there's changing the agenda because it's it's what the policymakers did to have you know, targets where they do the least they possibly can and they only right. want things that are absolutely confident. And that's not the way to avoid catastrophe. Right. The yes. way to avoid catastrophe is to figure out what the possible risks are and to to figure out, you know, how much do we have to do beyond, you know, the bare minimum, but uh, to be really confident that we won't tip over into catastrophic climate change. And yeah. that also includes personal responsibility and change in the lifestyle that we live. Each, every single one of us can contribute. I think that's Absolutely. the thing for the, the long-term, the short-term, I'm not an expert on this, but the experts I've spoken to seem to be fairly clear that we just need to get this stuff out, pull it out the atmosphere with machines. We've used machines to screw this up. And we need an industrial scale solution. I don't know if you agree, Eli, to this industrial. Obviously, we need to change our behaviors and everything. Absolutely. For the long term sustainability to get the system back in balance, you know, to, to keep to, to achieve balance, we need to do that. But to put it back to where it needs to be, don't we just need to invest in sequestration technology and do it quickly and hard and hard, hard and fast? Turn the yeah, system, within the, the past two years, uh, due to social right, social isolation and the re reduction in the uh, use of cars and stuff, you can see that environment has improved slightly, and that is an indication how personal behavior can greatly impact. Within two years, we see a huge difference. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's just like current emissions, and the problem is two centuries of emissions. And yes, what Ben is saying is, is yeah, absolutely that, the I'm case saying, yeah. that we, we, we have to we have to get in, you know, net zero is nonsense. We have to get into deep negative fluxes yeah, to yeah. get back to pre-industrial levels. Great point. Totally agree. Totally agree. It's it's just in the math, uh, just Tyler short about uh, or to Dr. Frenchstein and all other, many other statements I heard, it's still, uh, we are stuck because we are human beings. We have a psyche. We don't accept some truth if it's too hard, it's too painful. So we are still stuck on a collective basis in wishful thinking. That mm -hmm. is my uh, personal that, that's, Well, I agree with you. That's why I go back to my previous observation I've already made and Eli agreed with, is that if you do the sums, 
the work to pull the carbon out of the atmosphere that we need to, if you go one step further and say, keep our current lifestyle, keep driving the gas cars, do what you like, you only need to do about 10% more than the urgent work we already need to do to pull the 200 years out. So there is an argument for, and that's why that's so important. Yeah, it's not either or solution. It's yes, both. Totally for changing lifestyle, but but the realities that Will is bringing up that most people won't, and the sums that say we've had two hundred years of causing problems, we've urgently got to do something about it. Let's urgently do that thing. Let's not do the hundred percent we need to do. Let's do the hundred and ten percent we need to do, and. Um, at the same time, try and make the lifestyle and make the lifestyle improvements. But even if we don't succeed on the lifestyle improvements, 110 we'll percent of what we need to yeah, do. Yeah, we'll is see some great changes yeah, with 110. Yes, yes. The good news. The good news is the metaverse is developing, and this means with some milliwatts we can have a lot of experiences. And I'm, I'm true. That's not kidding, uh, because decarbonization and virtualization are definitely part of the um, of the scenario else we are absolutely doomed just by the math. And I always said uh, this, uh, I don't know the, the name, there's, um, uh, there's a David who is doing rooms about uh, sequestration and all this, this stuff. And in the room I said, think about uh, that um, to accumulate all the coal and oil, it took some uh, 10 or 100 million years to uh, uh, chemically, it's a reduction. It's a opposite of oxidation, yes? And that now we burned it in a hundred years. And now we have to build machines to get it out of the atmosphere in 10 years. Uh, by intuition, that's, I'm, it's so hard to say, it's not feasible. We will not do it, we, we, we are not able. Only an eco-dictatorship could do it, yeah? But if you're a politician and you tell people that they will work only for their ancestors from now on and will not have fun with cars and holidays, you are just doomed as a, a, dem, uh, as a politician in democracy. And so uh, to plant a tree because you are flying, uh, the logic is wonderful, Dr. Frenstein. Uh, but in reality, it's just if you have a certain purchasing power, you are in the upper middle class, you are doing something for your conscience, you, you feel good, you fly the same miles than like before and feel good. And the other people don't change their behavior either. So the science says uh, the behavior is not following the inside. Only the catastrophe will change the behavior. And this is, um, I'm sorry for it, this is proven by, by history, like um, dropping an atom bomb uh, created more awareness about um, non-proliferation non -prol of Proliferation. nuclear stuff. Yeah, yeah sorry. And so uh, I'm, uh, you, you feel it in my voice. Uh, I've thought for years about it and observed it all and was very frustrated uh, since 2009. The, the other climate conference where not so much happened. And from the systems perspective, it's all about the real numbers and not your good intentions. Uh, the good intentions are uh, myriads, uh, but uh, if we don't reduce our footprint uh, on a big scale, and we have this evolving middle classes in China, in Brazil, in India, of course, even in Russia a bit. So uh, they want to have um, 
yeah, kind of uh, lifestyle luxury. we enjoyed. Yeah, and I so agree. That's what I was saying. Uh, since we are not uh, stopping these huge contributors who are just every single day adding so much more load to the environment, no matter how much we sequester, whatever we do, it's not going to make a difference. We need to stop that uh, altogether. No, that, you that's know, what I contend, yeah. though. The numbers and don't and that. don't forget the water. How the water is being uh, depleted. All the you know underwater um, collections are being depleted. Well, I think I think uh, an interesting solution here is genetically engineered organisms could actually help, as opposed to this large machinery. Most of the energy activity on Earth. Uh, after sunlight is organisms like microorganisms. So if we can harness perhaps a portion of that, we can offset a lot of this footprint. And so uh, that's kind of where I'm coming at it from. It was very contentious. People really don't like folks throwing genetically engineered organisms into the ocean. There was actually a few instances of folks having already done this, and there were measurable kind of effects that had positive outcomes. Well, uh, the, dumping the iron, for are, example. Are actually, yeah, it's, you, it's you, you're, you're right. And, and uh, the other thing is geoengineering with uh, sulfur dioxide. But um, we, of course, do a, a risky experiment. And uh, who will decide to do this risky experiment on our sick planet? It will be very difficult politically. Uh, but after all, probably we will have uh, technologies for cooling uh, because uh, the situation will go um, so wild and maybe it's uh, close like in two years or so i don't know nobody knows but uh, these are also the tipping points in mind that um, and I, I say again there's not only bad news but the good news is that right now in human history we have this technology to create a lot of virtualization of uh, travel and having new experiences uh, like we had television and radio and enjoyed all evening to sit there watching TV. We have much more opportunities and this is a really small footprint after all. Yeah, If, if we are in VR and AR, it sounds a bit um, claustrophobic maybe for some, but uh, after all, probably uh, in 2030 or something, we will uh, use it, uh, yeah, very uh, habitually. Thank you. How much energy do VR and AR consume? Exactly. Well, to get the same experience, I, I think you could probably calculate a lot less than getting on a plane and directly injecting yeah, it's, CO2 yeah, it's into e the atmosphere. Even less, a, even less if we get some... rid of code bloat, because there's a lot of code bloat. Oh, there's so many avenues. So in general, the in my amateur opinion, the the industrial industry and technology has led to the problem and capitalism as well. The growth of the, the exponential growth of those things has led to the problem. It's my intuition that we can turn that on itself and solve the problem. And because capital growth um, and industry growth and technology growth is all subject to exponential change, we've got the benefit that we are going faster. All of those things are faster, bigger, better, stronger than they ever were. If we turn them in the right direction, I think they can reverse many years of harm quite quickly because we have more money, more technology, more scale than we ever had, if we can turn it around. I don't know how you do that. I'm no politician, but uh, if you do it, I think you, it stacks up. Yeah, it may, may not is... be doable. When I was a kid, um, we had these same discussions, and then we had them again in the 80s, 
And always the solution ended up being the technological fix. Uh, that's what we called it then, the techno technological fix. Oh, don't worry, a technological fix will come along and take care of this. I think we're a bit. Uh, I think we're a bit more advanced on that. I think last time um, Ellie talked about a solution set that seemed plausible. Ellie, I don't know if you want to share it again. Um, so uh, th there are a few solutions. Um, I will focus on uh, one that's closest to things that things have, have mentioned here. Um, it is possible to uh, double the net primary production of the ocean, that is the photosynthesis that is taking uh, car carbon dioxide or carbonate and converting it into organic matter uh, in, in using uh, a couple of percent of the surface area of the ocean uh, by cultivating really efficiently growing organisms like phytoplankton or microalgae in closed photobioreactors, and then take it out of the carbon cycle by uh, processing it into useful materials, including the materials that these systems are made out of. And this goes to the point that Ben was raising. If if you do that and also um, include a manufacturing capability, programmable manufacturing capability in these systems that can make copies of the systems, you get on really a pretty steep exponential curve where you can start from one square kilometer and wind up covering Point, uh, covering 2% of the ocean in about five years. And at that scale, it will be able to capture or convert uh, between 100, capture and convert between 100. Did Ellie just drop out? It relies on some different paradigms, but the the technologies that go into it uh, are largely things that have been been in practice industrially for years. The other point that I'll make is not only do we have to do that, but we have to change the other fundamental thing. Where uh, in the past, when technologies have been deployed, it's it's been uh, you know with the priority of either maximizing profit or supporting military competition. That is what has to change. The priority has to be restoring nature, rewilding, and supporting civilization sustainably. And that is entirely feasible. So I guess we're, we just need a war on climate change, because I think the military itself has actually started saying that climate change is becoming a national security risk. So like it or not, I think the military is still going to be part of this. And we see a lot of success with things like the gene drive programs for various uh, rodent uh, infestations or pesky things like some mosquitoes in areas that spread disease. So definitely the age of genetic engineering is upon us. The question is, can we do it in a safe way where we don't necessarily open up Pandora's box and then, you know, screw ourselves that way? So, so to, be, to be clear, what I described does not require any engineered organisms. They could, it could benefit from them, but it can be done without them. So I kind of just sidestep that whole debate. I think yeah, I would think you would want a security uh, uh, me mechanism to turn off those organisms so they don't actually run wild, and that's, well, what I, it, that's why I gave the example of the key drive. Systems, it's in closed systems, so you have control over it, and and you can essentially turn off the system. So yes. it's like a floating rig or something. Exactly. Oh, okay. Thank you. So okay. the context here that kind of wraps all of this together is there's three legs on the stool. There's the supply. There's the legislative 
piece of what needs to get done in our civilization. And the third leg of the stool is the demand. On the supply side, there's a bunch of different solutions. We need probably some more, I'm sure. But there's a bunch that are just, they need to be commercialized. All, all, all of what you hear is great on the supply side. We need more uh, tests. We need to develop and deploy them. The legislative, you know, Dr. Francine brings up a good point. You know, the hippies were all about saving the planet, and, and they gave birth to the Greenpeace. They gave birth, to, you know, the EPA was born after, after the, uh, the, that, that moment when we saw the, the, uh, the Earth floating in space. And so, but, however, thanks to some certain administrations, the EPA's ability to do its job were gutted. So we have had a very uh, mixed record here in the States and COP26 as a international approach. So that, that all of these things need to get going. And then the demand side, I will tell you when it's all said and done, the door to evolving our species is in our mind. And the carbon and the environmental is one of the fires in the, on the planet. The, the biodiversity apocalypse is another you know, and how those contribute to to the water, fresh water issues and things like that. So so anyways, we, this is definitely a, love the conversation. Love the room. Just I'm done speaking. So Can I have a question a for you. Here? So what would it take for a person like me to shift my priorities and to actually be a part of rewilding in an everyday way? Hold that thought. And, and Million, we have a, a house rule here of ladies first. I heard a, a lady's voice here. That was I think me. it was Aram. Go ahead. Aram, was it you or was it no, me? No, I already Pat. contributed. It was someone else. Sorry. Thank yeah, let Pat. Okay. Pat, go ahead. I think it was me. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Cheryl. I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, talk about the demand side. Um, uh, the man is me and you the nations, the countries, the world. And the question is, how much are we individually prepared to give up? If we can give up things, because we know we can, and we do it voluntarily, I think we can help the supply people by not therefore demanding so much of that supply. And we could help the legislative side by saying, hey, we don't need you guys so much. We don't need you to be doing all that. So it comes back, therefore, in my opinion, to each and every individual one of us as individual persons, but then as individual communities, individual uh, ethnicities, individual nations, individual whatevers, and then the one planet. What am I prepared to give up? Am I prepared to pay more taxes? Am I prepared to give up traveling so much? And that's a big issue. It's a big personal question for me, how much I'm prepared to give up or how much my family can give up. Because, you know, to us, travel is very, very important. Getting on an airplane is the only, well, not the only way, but one of the uh, fundamental ways to get from nation, country to country, section of the earth or the other section of the earth. So we would have to, I would have to think seriously, Am I going to have that next holiday? Am I going to have a holiday a year? Am I going to have 10 holidays a year? There must be something we can cut back individually that makes an impact. It is our choice. And COVID has shown us that we can do it. We can. We can. Because we need to. And we need to now with climate control. Can I, can I just say that what, what Pat correct, articulated? Pat, well said. 
Yeah, if I can just add, uh, it was uh, brilliantly stated, and we need to pull all the levers at our disposal. The, the debates between, um, you know, one form of energy substitution or one form of carbon capture or one form of personal behavior is better than others is a fool's errand. We need to activate all of those levers. And the one thing to Pat's point that every single one of us can do, if we're not already plant-based in our diets, shifting to a plant-based diet has a huge impact um, on the generation of greenhouse gases. So every one of us uh, can can make that uh, move into a plant-based diet as one of the levers to pull. Mm -hmm. And for health. Hold on. And plant-based, just last, I'll just pick up on that. There, that's that's that that's absolutely spot on. Thank you, John. But also, just the next step is to take the supply chain out. So if you really see, I mean, this is this great discussion. Start, start, go, go, go to your backyard, or go to your, you know, if you don't Farmers have a backyard, well, well, or grow it. Farmers market or grow it. Well, exactly. So I wanted to add that to the and plastic free and toxin free lifestyle and and and, 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 and leather free. Absolutely. Yes, leather free, all I natural. Mean, you can do it. The Amazon is going I've through been that its way largest for twelve years. Mm-hmm. A, a million. We. Uh, we we hijacked your point, so I just wanted to circle back to you. Actually, I think you guys are all answering it. Like this is exactly what I was looking for. What can I do as an individual? Plant based, yes. Now I'm thinking, you know, what would it require for me to start? So what would it be buying land, growing forests? Like what can I do every single day to move mm-hmm. my own consciousness into a framework that prioritizes? the planet like the earth rewilding so if i could eli can i so so you you, what you just said was was really the problem the problem is our cultural mindset so that's you know this up and to the right this consume 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 those are the prime toxic contextual worldview problems that we all are drunk on right so so i take a put a meditative moment on your calendar to really rethink that about that context and how are you using different metrics to measure success in life so that when you're passing along, I had buried my dad a few months ago, he lived the life he wanted to live and it was a beautiful life. And so I'm very conscious of like, as you're going through your met last moments, did you fight the fight to save, right? To save all these things. So yeah, the, the the cultural context. I would really have you know, suggest you meditate on that. And what does that mean? That whole consumption and up into the right. David. Thank you for sharing that, David, and everyone. Appreciate you all for speaking out. Thank you. I have a quick question. This Hello. is Elle. Good morning, everyone. I'm sorry I'm late to class. Um, <laughs> but my question about people saying like we should all switch to plant based diet. Everything in extremes has effects. So just like there's a big rush, like, oh, we need to have soy in our diet. People cut off, ma- they, they cut down mass forests and ve- um, vital vegetation to grow, to grow the soybean and to grow different foods. Just like David said, a big piece of the issue that we're facing is consumption. Think about how much food you waste, you as an individual waste on the daily basis. How much water you waste. How often when you brush your teeth, you leave that water running instead of turning it off. That's what the issue is. Thank so you, everything Elle. needs a balance. You, I you did, need to I did add more vegetables to your diet, of course. You need, to have, 
yet you need to in, ensure that you're eating enough vegetables so your your diet is balanced based upon you know what your your genetic structure is you know my family's from the caribbean my body does better with seafood and everything else however we can't just say oh we need to switch to plant-based diets we need to switch to be a vegetarian and do all this stuff in the extreme and then we're cutting down mass amounts of forest that has so much wildlife and things to sustain life on this planet then that then we're backtracking so thank you Elle, for saying that and, and you know and that is exactly what i was trying exactly to say. these blanketed statements about yeah. doing stuff like this is harmful I agree with everyone. that. And in terms of uh, preserving the land, you know, the land behind my house is now a nature preserved area. There were builders who were going to, uh, you know, build a subdivision there. All of us got together. We got the policy reversed. And now we all own that place. Nobody can uh, build anything there. And that uh, area is preserved. So community works. We can all get together and preserve the areas in your neighborhood if they are uh, filled with, you know, trees and forests and wildlife and protect those areas. Take personal responsibility. I just want to ask a question, I'm sorry, can I, can I ask a very, very quick question? The majority of people live in cities, don't they? They don't live in rural or suburban areas. Am I mistaken in that? About half, half. Um, but there, some there cities are, are actually like in Massachusetts. Uh, we we do have cities, but we have land mass that you can ask the state for just to create vegetation. So there are a lot exactly. of cities land that mass are is working. available in all. Um, states. Yeah, they're all working at at revegetate, like making sure that these these land masses are used for the proper um, uh, vegetation. And, and it depends on the people in the neighborhood, right? You have to have a collective body that agree to maintain it. But yes, no, but in my, Massachusetts, my, my we're point, doing that. Yeah, my point is that, you know, the the uh, things that are being thrown out, you know, go to your local farmer's market or grow it in your garden. or th The majority of people don't have access to those things. They live in cities in order to, I mean, you know, depending on the reason that people live in cities, some for work, some because they enjoy city life. I mean, it could be a, a variety of reasons, but we're, we're more social in the fact that we need to be in and around cities. Yeah, that's so it's, it's, cities can cities can be very efficient actually because I mean lot for lots of reasons but all living close to each other can be really, you, your space heating can be a lot more efficient if you're in a block of flats and everybody around you is warm I mean and so on and so forth the travel distances they can be quite efficient I think yeah. to me the biggest the biggest concern is a lack of focus we've got we've got to get rid of carbon there are certain things you can't remove because we'll die but the food chains will stop and so forth. Um, and there are certain things you can reduce. So, I mean, haven't we got to get a list of the things that we can do something about? Get some idea of where they are now. We already know that. Get some idea of what the minimum possible air travel, the minimum possible car travel, the minimum possible food waste, the minimum possible, et cetera. And then given that, the gap between where we are and where we need to be, then take all those and go, okay, what's the chances? What, 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 what can we actually, which of these can we actually shift politically, economically, whatever, technologically? whatever tool we use, how do we actually shift these things and which of them can be shifted? 
and focus on those really all laser focus because if we talk about small little bitty things that don't that don't make the differences it's, it's, it's we haven't got time so yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's, there are a few things here instead of shooting the ideas down just choose what you can do and do that you don't have to do everything you I, don't think, I don't think it's about i don't think it's about shooting ideas down yourself no, I don't think he's shooting things down. No, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think he's shooting. Here's okay, the thing, ladies. Though, uh, ladies, can, ladies, can we give John a chance to talk? He has been yeah, trying to I'll come let John in a few go, times. And I'll go after. John, yeah, go I, ahead. Yeah, I just want to reemphasize one thing, and that is, uh, we need to pull all these levers, and diminishing one solution because it's by itself inadequate is not going to take us where we need to go. We need. We we are in such an urgent existential threat that. Each of us needs to pull whatever levers are accessible to us. If we live in a city, maybe we take a different approach than if we live in an area where we can grow our own food or rely more on farmers' markets. But if 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 we are debating which solution, in and of itself, is the most impactful, we're we're really really diminishing the virtue of the convergence of every solution. We need to pull every lever, and there's too much comparison of this solution versus that solution we need to activate all of them. those with political connections need to activate their political influence those with economic influence over transportation and supply chain and and mining and crypto need to activate what they have access to every one of us needs to activate what we can do um, and and we we really need to abandon the competitive comparison of different solutions that individually um, may not be sufficient to get us out of this mess because we need to activate all of them. It's, it's worth. Thank you, John, for saying jo it. John, it's, I it's all hands on deck, and and anything less is fighting over the deck chairs on the Titanic. The problem Absolutely. lies not in the supply side, but on the demand side and the legislative. So you 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 were asking like, what can we do? The 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 pro the the core or the the biggest hurdle we have now is you, you know evidenced in the failure of cop 26 it's evidenced in the failure of the build back better there's all kinds of really very very crucially important legislation that got the kibosh thank you senator manchin and but really it's behind it's it's the uh it's the wizard of oz of the fossil fuel industry and the power structure that and their their power quite frankly over the legislation like globally so if you want to know you know the problem is there and that on the demand side the behavioral side there's a bunch of things we already came up with some great ideas of what to do, and just like John said, let's not let's not just just overanalyze and say, oh, well, this one's bad. Just get started, right? Just get started today. And I, in closing, on my remark this morning, as I'm taking my kid to school, is uh, there's a number of people working on startups to address this space. So here on the stage and on Clubhouse, and just please check out what they're doing and, and learn about the problems and things like that. To compliment what John, to compliment what David just said um, earlier as he was speaking, like, I get the sense that when most people think about green initiatives, everyone thinks about how can I eat it? And I was exclaiming to someone in a room the other day that when we were raising money for our, for our projects, we raised $90 million and it wasn't all going behind how can we eat what we're going to, because again, we consume too much. So sometimes we have to think about green solutions that have nothing to do with us, but more so the back-end payoff. And then secondly, in addition to that, as we go into these um, remedies, we have to consider that across the state here, 
probably everyone who's on this stage can on an individual basis look at how we can change our habits to contribute better. But in relation to the masses and the people who are out there on a daily basis, you know, bringing in that demand, we have to think about where their pockets are. Because from an economic standpoint, the least sustainable options, most affordable ones for the people who, you know, don't have. Anna Marie. Hello from Mexico. I was on four airplanes yesterday getting from Colombia to Mexico. And I've been thinking about this. I was thinking about it yesterday, but I'm really thinking about it today. And how um, there has to be a way where those of us who do travel for work or, or for pleasure um, have an ability to demand of industry and government to say, if there's a way for me to get from point A to point B, with um, less carbon footprint, so two planes instead of four planes, that should be a viable option for the traveler without paying a premium to do it. And I know that sounds a little bit crazy because industry's industry and we all have a bit of a capitalistic mindset, but this has happened in many other industries in the past where we have sort of use the carrot and stick approach on the policy side to push towards efficiency. But the problem is for so many travelers, they're going to take the least expensive way for need or desire. They'll do that. And it's not good for the world. It's not good for the planet to do that. And I didn't book this ticket. So um, I feel like... Um, I probably could have pushed the envelope if I would guess I would have been a little more proactive on it on the front end. But that said, it's, it was frustrating. Not to mention I was flying for 17 hours yesterday when it should have been like maybe eight, you know. But beside that, I just like think of the impact on the environment at scale for that sort of nonsense when we could have things in place that um, industry could buy into but would need a policy lever to implement uh, so that's just what I wanted to share, given I'm living it today. Okay, are we? Is my mic on? Are we ready? It are is loud and clear. Oh. Okay, here we go. So, um, next article is an artist and programmer in Australia creates the, what they call the NFT Bay. Uh, inspired by the Pirate Bay, my friends here in Stockholm. And it's a torrent website where anyone can download 15 terabytes of NFT JPEGs. Uh, and it would be interesting to see the aggregate value of everybody who, what these NFTs sold for. So uh, I think Cheryl can pin this to the top of the room. Although the version I'm reading. Oh my God, this is only the second article. <laughs> yes, we're only on the second article. So I'm actually going to change it to the version that I found. Uh, there we go. And the one that I found says, they're all very similar, that an Australian software developer has created the NFT bay containing an archive of NFT copies to show that NFTs are essentially nothing more than directions on how to access or download an image. That basically the actual uh, purchase of these NFTs is 
not in fact the image because the images in many of these NFTs are being hosted on web two solutions like Google Cloud or Amazon Cloud or whatever. And that you're essentially the NFT is a box or a container with directions that points to that file that's being hosted on a web two solution like Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure or whatever. And that you can go down anyone if they knew where that file name was on that server could download that exact copy of that exact JPEG or whatever it happens to be, PNG file, what have you. So he has done that and got all of the files and downloaded all of them, 15 gigabytes worth and made this. You can download all of them, the exact pixel for pixel, uh, you know, exact same file size. Copy. Tyler, I'm so confused. Uh, can yep. you just clarify? So these aren't on the blockchain then? Correct. Many. That's exactly precisely the point of this art piece, as he's calling it, which is he's meaning it to be kind of uh, uh, educational, comical, educational point that he's trying to make here, which is if you really want to do NFTs properly, you need to host the images and, and mint the NFTs so that the images themselves are part of the NFT on the blockchain. And he's trying to drive awareness to the fact that uh, a very many of these are are not doing this. And so people are buying NFTs that are essentially empty contain. And this happened to previously. A previous example of this was the person who purchased a CZ. I believe the, the founder of um, Binance paid somewhere in the neighborhood of $2 million for Jack Dorsey's tweet, the first tweet in the history of Twitter. You remember this six months ago and other people also bought similar tweets on the same platform. And it turns out that that platform was not, it was simply selling a container with the directions that linked to the original tweets. Well, that container is essentially empty. It just contains a, a, a link to the original artifact, which is the actual tweet, which is on Twitter's servers. And so somebody sold one of their own tweets through this platform. And then after it was purchased for $500, deleted their original tweet. So they got, they sold their tweet through this platform, got the $500 from the buyer, and then deleted the tweet. And now the container is pointing to a dead tweet that doesn't exist. And that's what this artist from Australia is saying, is that a lot of these NFTs eventually will be broken and lead to 404, you know, nothing found here web pages whenever those files you know, get moved uh, or change directories, as we call it. And that's what they're trying to draw attention to, that there's a whole in, in the statement. The NFT skeptic said that the prank has an artistic purpose, describing it as an educational art project so that people will understand and reconsider what they truly are buying when they're purchasing NFT art. He explained they're, they're that they're buying the token, which, right. which is the T in NFT. Correct. They're not buying the, the, the thing. And, and an NFT is kind of like a digital certificate of ownership. It is not the thing itself. Yeah. Precisely. You can em embed the thing on the same blockchain if, if the architecture were such, but that's not. What, that's you what else do you expect? There's, there's a good reason that they're not on the blockchain. This is why Bitcoin abandoned colored coins many, many years ago. It's because you can't maintain a decentralized blockchain with that much data on it. So you either just tie a token, uh, you know, the fact that you have the private keys to an Ethereum address to a hash of an image to say, hey, you know, this is vaguely mine. By the way, it's less useful than having an email to say that it's yours legally. 
or you um, and, and you accept that those links will get broken or you embed them in the blockchain and that blockchain will be not in the remotest bit decentralized. It will be a slow, expensive, um, lumbering, CO2 wielding, centralized beast um, that may as well just be use a different take technology like SQL or some old school database. It's, it's fundamental. This it's there's a very good reason you don't put the images on the blockchain. Ben, Ben, you just said something so core, so core about the the, the, the challenge of the idea, the challenge is facing the idea of blockchain technology. Because if, if, if the decentralization, if, if, you know, if, you, if we're trying to be efficient, then the specific architecture would be, there was one blockchain and, and it was decentralized as all hell for anybody on the planet who needed to use it. It would integrate all the different things that, that, that you always speak to, but you know, the untenability of that as a computing paradigm, you know, that is a big question mark that has never seriously been addressed at all. I mean, it's something in a room. I'd love to learn more about your thoughts about it. But, but it's I've been doing very obvious to Bitcoiners, but other people just miss it. I don't know why they just don't look into. It. People don't stop and look at block, uh, look at Bitcoin long enough to understand that it has trodden all these paths. It has tested all these avenues. It has iterated down them and retracted back. It's been here longer than everything else. It understands all this. It's all been tried. It's all been tested. It's all failed. Uh, and people don't sit on Bitcoin long enough to understand it, even in a cursory way, before they go running off on all the other things. So we just let time, you know, just history will just repeat. It's all cool. Um, but it's very simple and very fundamental. There's no room on a decentralized blockchain to store fucking images. You can store links, which is why they store links. And what do you have at the end of it? Nothing. You have something that when you turn up in court with an NFT saying, I own this thing and somebody's ripped it off, you've got nothing. A lawyer would far rather you show up with an email from a website saying, you have the copyright to this image, mate. Here's your email. Job done. What problem are you solving? None. You're just creating a massive amount of hype in a massive pyramid scheme. Uh, and it's happened before and, it, you know, it'll follow the same path. But we'll just wait. Ben, I don't think NFTs off, ever offered the copyright. I mean, even when you buy a piece of art on your wall, you don't know the copyright. Is that sure, right, sure. Ben? There are different degrees of potential ownership. But with a, you can go to a website with a load of images on it. If that website was hypey enough, if that was a useful, see, the one on one side, the marketplace of NFT is so buzzing because people are so confused about it and so excited about they're not sure what that it's a great place for an artist to go and put their art. Of course it is. There's so much hype and buzz and money. Of course, if you're an artist, you should put it on there and try and sell your NFTs. That's one side. The technological solution of having an NFT as an artist to say, I own this thing is fucking useless. You're much better off having a just emailing somebody. Hey, here's the here's a JPEG. Here's it attached. You have whatever rights you want, anything from full copyright ownership to just like when you get an image off iStock photo. What are your rights? Here it is in an email. Take that to court with you and defend it. Um, everything else is, is just a joke. But anyway, have fun. Ben, I have a question. Um, so like images are very elementary. And if we go much higher, moving forward toward the future, when we're thinking about the metaverse and like uh, wearables, digital avatars, just digital and virtual content itself that you can bring over from different um platforms that supposedly live on the blockchain on the decentralized side how that so then how how does that be, become resolved if everything just doesn't, doesn't really live on the blockchain? Te technological solution is just not there yet blockchain is mm. bitcoin solve one problem which is the double spend problem if money is a number uh how do you make sure that i don't spend that many times it's solved it it's beautiful but that's all it can do and everything else is just, there's no new leap forward yet. We'll maybe get one. We don't even really, maybe with something to do with zero knowledge proofs and so forth, but they're just, the, the solutions just aren't there yet. So um, 
it's all quite simple when you just look at it through the eyes of computers and broadband speeds and you know storage costs and all that type of stuff. You pick. Do you, do you want do you want information that no no nation state can affect? Then it needs to be on hundreds of thousands of computers in lots of different states. You know, it needs to be cheap and easy for lots of people to, to spin it up and take a copy. Cool. Or do you want it to be a big, nice centralized database like Amazon or all the other big centralized databases, which work efficiently and beautifully and they're distributed, but they're not decentralized. And we have that solution. But there is no there is no kind of both right now. You can't have your cake and eat it. You can't have a thing that doesn't waste a load of energy and scam a load of people. And at the same time is decentralized and, you know, in, in the hands of the people and all that just doesn't just doesn't exist at the moment. It does for money, but it doesn't for other things. Hey, this is, a, I thought that one of the points or the, the, the beautiful things about an NFT is more for the artists that they could, you know, uh, like they could say that this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you could say that this piece of artwork is mine and there's like a serial or unique identifier tying it to them. So no but one you can take a hash the of authenticity. A yeah. It's the authenticity piece. But you can take a hash of a JPEG in two seconds on your Mac. You, I mean, I, I, I pin a tweet, if you like, about how to do it on your Mac, you can just say hey i made this jpeg cool here's the hash of it cool it's just a number it takes two seconds on the mac on the terminal to do it you could do it use a little app to do it um and if you really want to say i own this and bury that in history or i had this jpeg at this point in time uh, then go and spend like you know one cent to yourself on the bitcoin blockchain and, and in something called the op return drop that hash and just say hey i had this image and then you can at, nobody's ever going to change that no one can wipe that out of history and you can prove you had the thing at the time um but if you want to defend these things, you still got to go to a lawyer and you still got to go and, you know, if, if, if somebody starts abusing your art or using it or making profit from something you're supposed to have copyright of or whatever, ultimately you've got to go and get somebody to defend that and, and oh, armed yes, with an NFT. Of course, it has to be more. And than that's one called thing. an oracle. And that's off the blockchain. And that thing is not anything to do with the blockchain anymore. So why are you using a blockchain? Just freaking send someone an email saying, here's your picture attached, mate. It's hashes this. Have fun. Here are your rights. Take it to court if you need to. That's all. We've got that solution. What do you mean? Uh, there is another feature of NFTs, and, and, and you're, you're right, Ben, um, this kind of doesn't speak to what you were saying, but it, it, it does speak to um, one of the reasons that uh, NFTs have meant so much for artists, and that is the smart contract that uh, entitles artists to uh, uh, you know, a portion of uh, future sales, for instance. Um, that could be done without blockchains, but this is what has given attraction in, in the historical practice as things have so I have a question for you guys that are experienced with this, because the phrase that comes up for me is arbitration of value. And I noticed this, for example, in like electric vehicle startups, also in basically all of are coming out NFTs as well. It seems like to something new that's been created and then it goes up 150x, 200x, but it doesn't have any underlying value. Like there's nothing behind it to support what what is actually being called okay this is worth whatever this has a market cap of 20 billion dollars but what what does that say for currency because it seems arbitrary it doesn't seem like there's anything actually happening to support that so then how does but, that, that change what, what, what the us dollar for example what's supporting your us dollar corruption corruption it's ultimately only backed by the us military so there's no gold confidence. No, no, no. It's not just the military. It has emerged to be the most well-run monetary system. As broken as it is, it is among the most well-run monetary systems. It is broken. It is effing broken and manipulated that all day long. 
but it's not just the military. It's it's, yeah, it's the it's, best best of a bad bunch. It's right? the best. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he sucks. He does say in God we trust, so you know it's, it has that going for it. This is absurd. Which God? <laughs> but my, but no, no, no. Hang on, hang on. My point. No, my point is like, you know, if we want to put our adult pants on on this on this conversation about about the corruption. Yes, there's the corruption, and yes, we need to 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 get around the the, the effects of the corruption in our society, all of that. You know, but there is there is a bit of the uh, they're getting the conversations about the blockchain that are kind of. There, there are nefar- nefarious uh, parties behind some of the uh, the crypto space, and all I'm saying is, that whenever they start to speak up about about you know what, what's the, what's the word anarchy, they they just don't use the word anarchy, you know it, it's 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 not it's not it's not what's the what's the other damn word, <laughs> one cup of coffee. It's not a real honest conversation is my point. Like, like, you know, some of the things that all of us are learning about just the black market, if, if, if somebody's trying to birth a global black market to, to support all of the things that black markets do, that, that there's something wrong with that. Right. So, so in any case, uh, I'm done speaking, but it's, it's, it is, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the most legitimate. It, It works. Um, it is, it is, there's some corruption behind how it's manipulated. Yes. But, but, what about inflation, the rate of exactly. inflation? That's a great question. Exactly. This, this leads the to of, uh, the next article very that, perfectly. That drives crypto. This yep. is why we can't have nice things. Here's the next article uh, that, which Cheryl doesn't have, but I will pin to the room because you'll see how perfectly this, uh, you guys have pre-anticipated the next article I wanted to share anyways. So we're we jumping. are going into future just like you, Tyler. Here, here it says from Market Watch, uh, crypto can. This is uh, former Secretary of State uh, Hillary Clinton says that crypto can destabilize nations and undermine U.S. dollar dominance. Hillary Clinton says that uh, she points to Russia's Putin as a crypto threat. Former U.S. President and Sorry, former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton on Friday, that's today, warned nations across the globe to take the growing popularity of cryptocurrencies seriously because these instruments have the potential to undermine the power of nation states and the role of the U.S. dollar in the global economy. Quote, one more area that I hope nation states start paying greater attention to is the rise of cryptocurrency because what looks like a very interesting and somewhat exotic effort to literally mine new coins in order to trade with has the potential for undermining currencies for currencies for undermining the role of the US of the dollar as the reserve currency for destabilizing nations perhaps starting with small ones but going much further clinton said during a panel discussion at the bloomberg new economy forum in singapore on friday clinton pointed to the example of russia as an actor that can use cryptocurrencies and cyber tactics to weaken its geopolitical foes Russian President Vladimir Putin, she said, has at his disposal a very large stable of hackers and those who deal in disinformation and cyber warfare. What? That's Now that's breaking news right there. We've never heard anything like that before. Experts have questioned whether private cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or public digital currencies like China's digital yuan will have much effect on the dollar status as the world's reserve currency, 
though the development of central bank digital currencies might reduce demand for dollars as instruments of cross-border transactions. The, the petrodollar may uh, suffer as a result of this, but I think most of the trade relations depend on, for example, securing trade routes in the ocean, and that's still predominantly a U.S. activity. So uh, I think it's still going to be a while, but I think having Bitcoin as an alternative reduces some of the friction as well as frees up the market to make more independent choices that's not necessarily always at the mercy of the Federal Reserve. Friction has been resolved long time ago with e-commerce and with Stripe and all these fintech technologies. Friction is no longer. You set up your account, you connect. The the, the waiting a few days to do things, the transaction friction has largely been gone for quite a David, while. Yeah, a few days though. That's there's still two. that's still a long time. So we, we vendors have up to six month period where chargebacks are possible, um, and credit card fees are in the in the many cents per transaction. So if I'm a creator and I want to charge people. <clears throat> microcharge them one cent per minute of video or something. Can't do it. You can't do it in the fiat system. You can't micro sell things. Um, so, Ben, 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 you're a game. You're you're a ga you're a game expert. You teach this expertise. I understand you're you're trying to push it forward, man. I am, I am so supportive. I just all I want to offer is just that, <clears throat> depending on how you're productizing what you do, virtual goods in the gaming space, the microtransactions. I mean. The, the arcade machines we used to, you want to know the first FinTech? It was the freaking arcade machines that we built. The, 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 the first microtransaction was a quarter. And, and we, uh, that, that, that's kind of the, the purchase of an arcade machine by, by, uh, by an operator was based on the fact it was making money. It's, it's FinTech back in the freaking 70s. But all I, I agree with you in, it, when you get way scaled down to the fraction of a something. But but the the value of <clears throat> of and in fact in, in virtual goods they kind of resolve that too right because in the virtual environment you're buying a thousand coins for a buck for five bucks for ten bucks so so you can you can the granularity has been there in in the gaming experience for a long time I just I, I I've been I've been hopeful about as I've been learning about the blockchains and crypto and stuff but I'm just I think there's a, just, a, just some other parts that need to be added to the conversation. And, and friction, y'all, we've been talking about friction in apps and commerce and, and engagement for, for, for over a decade now. I mean, and so, the, right. Yeah, so so you're, you're going to the next level of margin in your leadership on this stuff. Absolutely. It's just kind of there's a cost. That's kind of my point is reconciling the cost to it. And it's really, really, I'm, 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 what I'm saying is that the, the friction is not even the important uh, discussion here. The, the really important discussion that we, we, Tyler segued into this is inflation. It's the point, if you, we used to have a world a long time ago where people bartered for things. Everything was worth a certain number of guinea pigs or tomatoes or whatever. And because of the difficulty of coincidences of want in time, space and scale, it's really difficult to, to if I want a wing mirror for my car, it's super difficult to sh you to show up with enough tomatoes that are fresh at the right time in the right place. Um, to, to, to make that exchange and having one common form, one money that we can use is a really good way of, you know, doing something today, spending tomorrow, or we all translate to that to money. We get that. Uh, having everyone having a thousand different effectively Chuck E. Cheese tokens for every bit of value they've created in every game and any, every NFT, I'm not sure is progress. Um, it's almost a retrograde step back towards having the barter system. Uh, that's one point. And then the more important point really is that the, a, print, a sound money like that, any, any token we do agree on, like the dollar, which is great, it's the best of a bad bunch, um, that must be a stable measuring stick. And 
back, originally it was, it was backed by gold. Now, when the Fed have said they will print as much as they need to to get us out of trouble, it is absurd. What is a dollar worth when they've doubled the number of dollars in the last not too many years? Um, and what is it going to be worth tomorrow when we don't know how much the Fed is going to print? At the Literally, somebody at a computer pushes a button. I don't know their exact protocols. Maybe two people need to push two buttons. I don't know. But you st achieve some value today in the real world. You give some value to the world. You, you store that value in the dollar. Um, what's it going to be worth in 20 years? You got any idea what it's going to be? I've got no idea. I have no idea what they're going to print. I've got no control of it. I've got no insight into it. And it's too easy for them to push a button. Um, that's the real issue. But well, is, it, is, is that is not the same with the digital currency as well? I mean, no, well, it's not the, it's, it's not. not quite the point there. The, the point is you need to manage the 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 the, the central the, the central the economy managing economy of financial budgets being transferred has to interact with all the other economy of all the different fruits we buy. I mean, that's really cool. David, you're in the matrix. Is he with the app or is that me? Yeah, I think it's David, yeah. David, we can't hear you. You're in you, the matrix. So I have a wider question about this, which is it feels like there's a decoupling between value and physical reality. So it, nothing is even attached to what's real, like what's in front of us. There's like this air world that we're living in where all this value is going. Like, And it's actually combined with all the things we're talking about today because... Let's say that the NFT market that we've understood can actually just be downloaded as images has a market cap of, let's say, $100 billion. But it's actually, there's no value behind it. It's, it's a joke. Whereas most human beings on this planet, every single day are fighting with the reality of needing to make enough dollars to just live. And their existence is based on that. Like, what is that? Uh, a million? I would, actually, I would actually answer that to say that even the dollar itself, because I heard someone say to you earlier, you know, what's the dollar backed by? What, what most people don't understand is this. Money is a system. If you take money and you throw money into the ground, money does not turn into oil. Money does not turn into the electrical appliances that you have in your house or the things that you need to repair your damn car. Money is a system. And that system just means control, right? And that's all, that's all it comes down to. Like, if you say there's a decoupling with reality, the reality is this. The people who are at the top operate in service of the people who are at the bottom, i.e. government, right? Government operates in service of the people. Yet that concept has been flipped on its head for the last couple hundred years. And now everyone just automatically assumes that the government is God. If you think about it, all the things that the government, in any case, tries to protect people from are actual things that the people are paying the government to know. There should be nothing that is a secret from people. And funny enough, like, I was never the biggest proponent of anything crypto, but at the end of the day, there needs to be a switch because money is just a system that tells you that, hey, I am above you, I live above the fray, and I can afford the things in healthcare that you can't. So if it takes something like crypto to give other people a fighting chance, then why not? Because what you're looking at is a system fighting against the system just to make people feel like there's a level playing field. The decoupling from reality is actually necessary because you pay every elected official salary yet they live a better life than you do amen that is not a system that makes sense that is that is a system Facts. gone awry so Thank it you, should Desmond. be decoupled from reality Would you, i have a different take on it uh, respectfully the from 
I haven't experienced that might be relevant. And uh, I really like the, the framing of the question a million. And it's something I've thought much about. And I'm living in Thailand with uh, Thais and Burmese who are very much like the people uh, you were describing. Uh, people in Burma are not having this uh, disconnect between reality and this digital reality. They're living, they're fishing, they're eating real food, and they're not spending any time in this artificial digital, you know, you, you could look at your smartphone and your laptop as the embryonic stage of the metaverse where we're living in this kind of digital fintech, everything's digitized, all my work happens through my laptop and my phone and all my everything's happening through my devices. That's not true in the developing world to a large extent. And, and the people who I surround myself with every day, 24 hours a day, every day of the year, so much so that when I first started working with my team in Thailand, uh, which is a mix of Thai and Burmese, as uh, Shane well knows, because he's there at my house right now, um, they don't spend any of their time on gadgets. And I did. And I was on my laptop and I thought I was the boss. And here I have this team of Thais and Burmese who do everything with their hands all day long. They're, they're functionally illiterate and by Western definitions, uneducated. And yet they can do magic with the ground and with seeds and with farming and with water and with energy and making things happen physically in the physical domain. I'm very skilled in the digital domain. They are complete useless in the digital domain they can't they don't know how to turn on the device now but they when it comes, magic and magic is fucking awesome when it comes to dinner time because the, the one of the traditions i love about living in southeast asia is you sit down together on the ground with no chairs and you put the food in the center of your circle and you all share the food together that was caught and grown and cooked and prepared by actual humans this is physical food not metaverse food by the way and they look at me, they look at me as if I have a neurological disorder for sitting on a plastic childlike keyboard all day. And I contributed in their mind nothing to the meal that's in front of us. And they think of me as a, a, a newborn baby who needs to be coddled and taken care of, who cannot who could not take care of himself like a, leaving a, a one-month-old baby in the wild. That's how they look at me. And I look at them as, oh, you know, I relate this. You're, you're uneducated. Okay. You don't know about okay. the digital world. And the point is, the digital world can disappear. And in the metaverse, your, your body in actual reality, forget money. You need water, energy, and food. And you, if you cannot secure those and make those things an actual reality, you die very quickly in a matter of days. And you cannot get that from the metaverse in this digital realm. So the, I very much believe that was a real awakening moment for me. And it took me some time to understand and appreciate their perspective that, in fact, I'm spending my entire day on a keyboard and clicking little plastic buttons and not actually getting anything actually done. It's as if I'm a neurologically challenged individual clicking away like Rain Man, getting nothing done all day, every day. And they're digital getting, trance. 
they're getting everything actually done in terms of food and water and energy. And it took me a, 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 a good amount of time to really appreciate fundamentally the reality that to understand base reality versus this digital reality. And I agree. There's a massive schism and decoupling happening in the highly developed Western world that many of my friends are responsible for helping uh, metabolize. And it, and it's, I think we need to become much more aware of it because when systems falter, we revert back to very quickly, immediately base reality that this that this digital reality can only be sustained when the base reality is robust and redundant and it's maslov's pyramid you can only start to even concern yourselves with this digital world once the bottom part of that pyramid is is, is firm but as soon as there's any uh, fragility in the base reality you can kiss that digital reality goodbye yeah, you are absolutely and right. And biologically, I mean, it's a, it's a mix that of both kind of things. lifestyle I know the is supporting. Li so the health and well-being, their physical, emotional health is way better than uh, our uh, so-called uh, developed nation. Uh, yeah. It's, it's uh, interesting. I have, I have uh, a family is... member that came to America and visited, and, she, and my mother-in-law said, well, how do you like America? She says, you've got the architecture, but you don't have the community. And that's something to be said about that, yes. We do need the digital world, but we've forgotten how to be communal, how to work with each other, how to work with our hands. And that, I think, is far more detrimental. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that on. it's not, I mean, yes, it's a bit Orwellian, like uh, I think it's Dazzling was saying it is. But to Tyler's point, it's all about cultural value and where you are at that point, uh, where you are in the world. Everybody places different values on different systems depending on their environment and how their community runs. So not everything will work in one place that will work in the other. Yes, in the highly developed world, as we put it, we have all these systems in place, but they're all flawed because they're based upon old um, workflows and cycles that no longer uh, fit our daily lives. So until we make those adjustments and put those redundancies to Tyler's point in, we're going to keep running into these huge um, uh, gaps and we have to keep mitigating. We have to be more proactive in our thinking and the way we go about stuff and also try to complement, you know, don't complement everything with technology. That's, you know, all we can do. I think about consumerism and accumulation of products uh, which are fake instead of accumulation of health, well-being, and joy. Yeah, because we live in a consume-consume society, which is an issue. Everything is about consumption, where if you go to uh, like Burma or, or any of these other places, it's not about consumption, it's about preservation. You, you do things in moderation. You work with the environment, which is something that a lot of us don't do here in the Western world, whether it's when we go shopping or are just working through our day-to-day -day lives, we don't think about those things. We just consume, consume, consume. And, and no matter how much we advance in technology, our human biology is deeply connected to our environment and we cannot change that at all. Tyler, last time you told this story, it's super impactful for me because I, I've been telling other people over many a dinner about you know your ideas that real wealth yeah. is about your ability to, 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 to be self-sovereign over your own wealth, your shelter, water, food, and so forth. Yeah. And the idea that Maslow's pyramid is only any use if you if it's additive, if you maintain full self-sovereignty over all your physiological needs before, you know, and then add the later layers. I love that. I've got a question though. If your people there, if you were to come to them with a technology that helps them sow the ground more efficiently and 
the knowledge uh, and under their full knowledge and understanding of how to maintain that thing, whatever it is, from a hoe to a to a tractor, there's a sliding scale, right? From something yeah. super simple that I'm sure they already use for themselves, uh, all the way through to uh, like a tractor, uh, which will give. Uh, how would they respond? What, yeah, what so is because clearly we, at some point, yeah, yeah, yeah I bought I bought a tractor. I bought a tractor for about forty thousand uh, dollars because we have a. In addition to the beach resort, we have an actual full huge farm, a rice farm, and we and we can grow all kind anything. We do grow everything and anything you can imagine there on the on the proper farm, and it's such a scale that having a proper tractor was a very convenient thing to have. So we do have that. However, Thailand and that part of the world has an amazing geographic. Uh, abnormality in that it can take any physical object and turn it into dust in about five years. So tractors have a, uh, where in, in Scandinavia, where I am, you build a house, uh, you build anything, it will generally last a very long time. For whatever reason, the, the levels of bacteria in the air and the elements in the air and the level of humidity uh, are such that um, houses are thought of as temporary things. In Southeast Asia. And they make, because of that reality, they make no effort to even build things long term. Where in Scandinavia, you build anything with the, the thought that it will last 500 years. In Thailand, you build things with the thought that it will last five minutes. And so. Another e factor is that, oh, sorry, well, e even a tractor, it's like, okay, well, this might last five years, which. Well, yeah, well, that's just how it is. I, I don't know. I can't explain it, but nothing lasts down there for any period of time. So they will they will adopt it at, with the knowledge that this is a very with with the with the absolute certitude of knowledge that it's a very temporary thing. So they won't overly invest in it for fear of being uh, uh, for fear of becoming dependent on it. But and Tyler, that's yeah, that was that, that was another factor uh, in the Southeast Asian uh, farming practices. They are very careful of preserving their old methods. Why? They, because when you expedite something and expand something, it destroys the earth. And they are really conscious of the practices that preserve the mother earth instead of destroying it. So yes, you can get a higher yield for a few years. But then what happens? Look at the land here. The land dies off and then you cannot grow any longer as opposed to them continuing these practices for centuries without losing the land's value. I well, think there may be some unfortunate facts about the size of the population, though, on the planet now. And, the, and the, um, maybe yeah. it's just a few too many of us. Yeah, Tyler. They have. Well, yeah, one second. Just, they're also the, the whole, you know, they use water buffaloes as tractors, essentially. Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. So, Tyler, and they're very familiar. They animals, different animals for uh, using, yeah. uh, well, you know, Southeast Asia's main, Southeast Asia's mainly water buffaloes. So, and they're very familiar with that process, and they're very comfortable with that process. They like tractors. Don't get me wrong. That's considered an, an insane luxury, and and they'll even, if you live in a community with one tractor, the other farmers will pay you to come do their land. That's a reality. That does happen. Um, I, I, I didn't I guess totally... the shit from the water buffaloes can uh, fertilize the land too. Right? Yes. Yeah, yes. but I mean, it's a dual purpose fertilization. And, and don't get me wrong, having a pickup truck is an is a total, um, absolute. Every every 
man in Thailand has a Toyota Helix uh, Vigo pickup truck. And, and sil- by the way, they're all silver for some reason. But the pickup truck will fall up every couple of weeks. There's a problem with the truck and they fix it with chicken wire and duct tape. And that's just this endless process of generators and, and uh, uh, mechanical things break down constantly all the time everywhere. Always, 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 always. Almost like the country's cursed or something. It's really bizarre. So they adopt to that and don't put a whole lot of permanent um, trust in it, which is why they were paper dollar based until literally COVID. And they switched from paper dollars and this goes into why they're so such a paper-based society, even with their contracts for their houses and everything, even banking, you take physical cash out of the bank in huge amounts, sometimes suitcases and, and paper bags full of cash and transfer it around in a sneaker net kind of way. But that's, that is starting to change because the internet finally has gotten to a level of stability where people are willing to do financial transactions digitally. That has just occurred in the last year and a half due to covid hey tyler yeah i just tweeted something that was interesting even though it's briefly kamala harris first woman to get u.s presidential powers briefly because biden is going in for his regular health check and they've been sort of a lot of the documents and concerns in the media have been that his health is not aligned so she 42 minutes ago they've announced that she's the first woman to get u.s presidential powers briefly and I just tweeted that out. Ah, can yeah. I just correct? I, I need to correct something. So, okay. all, Joe Biden is going in for a, a, a was colonoscopy. Yeah, colonoscopy. but what are we correcting? Ah. All I'm doing is announcing one no, little no, thing. No, no, you, you, you made it sound that his health is somehow unusually. No, actually, no, actually, let me just back that up a second because I don't know if you heard me correctly. What I was describing was is that his mental stability is being questioned by a lot of the journalists lately because he fell asleep and was appearing to fall asleep in a major important meeting. And yes, he's going in for a colonoscopy, correct? But there is still questions of his capacity because his mental acumen and being able to respond eloquently and quickly to the request of those that are questioning things of him is not as up to par. I, I just wanted to point out though his predecessor did the same thing. President uh, Bush. Trump uh, did he, as well. Uh, no, Trump didn't. Trump did the, uh, his colonoscopy without anesthesia and never transferred power. That's Trump. Okay. But, <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. Okay. <laughs> no, no, that would be very he, Trump. Didn't even. Oh, even no, that's that. actually true. So, so uh, President Bush, the second President Bush, did it twice. He transferred power to his vice president. Um, the, his father did it once. Ronald Reagan did it. Okay, this has been done before. Uh, for yeah, exactly, this is the first time that a black woman. This is the first time that a black woman is her point. Yeah, I, I realize that, but I'm just saying. They're using this as probably like a crutch to say that he's not, he's unable to leave. Of course, because that's what journalists do, right, Tyler? No, that's what, that's what corrupt, that's what corrupt journalists do. Exactly. Great correction there. That was, that was the, that was the observation was, is that clearly with Tyler and lovely rants about journalists, whatever capacity they are, 
Clearly the woman that was just speaking now that was saying that this gives people the opportunity to find something to dig into. That's in essence what I was describing, which is why I was pointing it out. Yes. I think it was Al, sorry. Thanks, Al. I recognize the voice, but it was This the historic moment, I think, in U.S. history, a woman Correct. In charge of the country. So I think that's that's not uh, small news uh, to me uh, and uh, to, to the to, to the American citizen, I think. Um, uh, regard- really? In this way? Yeah, as a no. woman, I don't like this. this is the way you stay a woman in, in, is the power, the most powerful person in this world. No, it, it's, like, really, uh, it's actually so unique because um, the it's unique, unique but was... I don't think it's a pleasure way to see. Yes, uh, I was just thinking we were discussing a very nice means. topic just now, but some something just got interrupted. Okay, Jesus yes, Christ, we're really in tech news around the world. This, we're what still on the environmental issues. Yes, I think it, that's yeah, true. it's just the U.S. I mean, we're not saying like it's some surprise. Last time I checked, here in the, the afternoon is the U.S. Okay. one. We're only getting a lot of you from the U.S. in the afternoon. Not from Singapore, Asia, right? This is the American version. That's the last time I checked. Well, wait, Tyler, have you finished your here, previous can I, topic? Can I just add, like, one little thing is the, the reason this is surprising, like, this is a, um, like, a major thing in the U.S. is because the, the only other time a woman was even in the chain of succession was Madeleine Albright when she was Secretary of State, and she was ineligible for the presidency because she was not born in the U.S. So this is actually something that is incredibly unique. This has never happened before. We've never, like, this is not the first time a woman was in the chain of succession because it was when, uh, you know, when Obama was president, um, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton was in the chain of succession, but um, she was, but there was never an issue where uh, he was, uh, it went that far. So this is actually a very unique situation where um, a woman is actually so close and the um the act has been it's been enacted the what is it like the the 20 something amendment it's the 25th amendment part of the 20th thank you yeah so 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 that's officially but uh edith wilson was running the country for a while Eleanor Roosevelt. That's true. <laughs> Edith Wilson actually, they say that she was actually um, one of the people who ended up putting forward. There was even a convention to discuss the League of Nations. Um, and she was doing that because Woodrow Wilson had, I think, had several strokes and he was incapacitated for the end of his, his presidency. Let's but just he put was that actually, time, that, Alexander, 1921. <laughs> I could have gone there. Oh, years ago. Joe, Joe uh, can we go back to class. our headline that we were discussing the political? Yeah. Discussion? Please. Oh my God. Okay. Is Tyler there? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, going back to uh, crypto, um, I have I've been listening to you guys, but I nobody mentioned about gold. I think gold is the um, enemy of crypto here because we see central banks actually using gold to. Um, Hedge against inflation. Not and, at all. Uh, not absolutely, anymore. Absolutely no no threat to crypto or the fiat system anymore. It's not nimble. It doesn't. It doesn't. You no, not, but it still gonna... dominate the market. Uh, 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 market for gold still in the twelve uh, trillion, and uh, crypto is still about two trillion uh, or so. Go, go, go hold some um, gold and come back in a few years. See how how much value, how much it'll buy you. It's 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 had its time. Gold is wonderful. It was wonderful. It had most of the properties of sound money. 
it was scarce, it was, you know, open, sound, S-O-U-N-D, it was scarce, it was open or verifiable, it was, it was uniform, one bit of gold was like another, but it is not nimble, it is not on your smartphone, you are not going to fly around the world on an airplane and shave a bit of gold off. Well, it's a forex, uh, forex, uh, for, forex stock, stock exchange reserve, uh, and those are used for stabilized currency as well as economy. So um, if you're familiar sure. with IMF, uh, they, they yeah. number one, three holding uh, of gold uh, and country like US is holding a uh, large amount as well as China and Germany. So those gold countries are not going to be value the, the gold. Uh, and uh, go back to Tyler earlier about Thailand. Actually, Thailand was number one buying gold. Uh, if you're tracking gold buying uh, for different countries last quarter, yeah. I think one thing that uh, we know is gold still still one uh, still gold still uh, the best uh, hedge against uh, inflation, beside uh, real estate. Actually, it's physical things. Uh, so, I think in the inflation world, um, one the domino effect is that um, you're gonna grab on to things that are physically you can grab on, uh, and history has shown that. Uh, well, this, gold this, as well as by the uh, way, you you touched on it's always uh, best yeah. hedge against inflation. So un, un, until proven otherwise, I think there's gonna be a domino effect here. Uh, all you need, all, all you need to take is U.S. president would say that uh, they're gonna try to tap into somehow um, somehow taxing uh, uh, cryptos here, and it's just that uh, it will send a shockwave through the market. I think. Uh, it's just a they're, matter of time. A lot of countries are uh, are actually worried about uh, this Bitcoin is gonna uh, or and crypto uh, world gonna run out. Um, and uh, I think uh, right now it's uh, definitely hype. Uh, and uh, just my my opinion here. And it's just a matter of time that uh, that doesn't get frozen uh, at some point. Thank you. Go ahead, Ben. Well, there is a lot of hold on, Eric. Hold on, Eric. Ben was waiting. Go ahead, Ben. Sorry, my bad. No, no, it's cool. I was going to be rude, actually. I was going to say have fun staying poor is a, is a Bitcoin term you use. That's a bit rude. That's why. Brent, first of all, welcome back, Brandon. Long time. Hey, Tyler. Great. Hey, buddy. See you guys again. You too. Hey, Brandon. No hey, everybody. Hey, <laughs> go ahead, Eric. Have you been? <laughs> Working. <laughs> Trying to be uh, productive. <laughs> Eric, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that there is a lot of off-planet mining of precious metals possible. So the crypto universe is resilient to off-planet mining. So if we move mining just from Earth to some of these asteroids that Jeff Bezos wants to go after, for example, that's going to further decrease the price of gold on Earth. So even in the long, long term, it's not necessarily a safe asset as safe as crypto. Well, I'll give you uh, just some cultural context because, because the gentleman brought up the Thailand gold issue. And this is perhaps relevant for everyone to keep in mind uh, in the case of the apocalypse, because the reason that the Thais and people in that region are so fond of gold was because George Soros wiped out their currency. And it's not the only country where George Soros has done that, and it won't be the last. So, well, he's getting very old, so maybe it is the last. Hopefully. <laughs> but China it thinks that he's going to come for China, by the way. They've recently called him the son of the devil. Uh, that's kind of the translation from Mandarin. And an economic terrorist is the other translation from Mandarin. And and many Thais felt the same way uh, for quite a while. And it's be that's why still today, when their, their currency was forced uh, to collapse, uh, due to George Soros's um, financial maneuvering maneuvers, the ties became 
that again, that is very similar, that dollars are itself a form of technology and a kind of digital realm. Not digital, but it's a, a physical man of uh, kind of um, it's a physical alternative. Yeah, it's a form. It's a form of abstraction. So that can be disrupted, just like the internet can be disrupted, just like the metaverse. So the finance, the, even the dollars themselves, as people in Lebanon well know right now can be wildly disrupted and when it when it comes down to it water food and energy is what it comes down to and then you need a physical manifestation of value which dollars is an abstraction it's just paper it's not actually worth what you're claiming it's worth it's an abstraction so it's symbolic you could say so uh gold is more physically it's less abstract. It's, uh, you know, the real deal would be to go back to direct bartering with, you know, wheat and, you know, fish and shit like that. It's very cumbersome. And gold does, even in apocalyptic scenarios, people do revert to gold as they, and it would be interesting to see what they're reverting to in Lebanon. I suspect that there's an incredible amount of Bitcoin is what they're uh, perhaps reverting to. And it would be interesting to see what percent of uh, people in Lebanon are, trying to store their, and, and we could also say Venezuela and other places where the currencies have collapsed very strongly. Are they, are they going shifting to Bitcoin or are they shifting to gold? And, and, and that would be an interesting analysis. Well, can I, can I just really quickly make one comment? And I know that, again, I cannot seem to stop myself from saying extremely unpopular things, but um, I don't think that there's any cause to say that George Soros is any form of financial terrorist um, what he's done is take out positions on particular currencies that have well-known weaknesses, including yes. the bot, and then yes. advertise those weaknesses um, because they're, they exist and they're not unknown to people in the community. Right. When he benefits off of these positions, that doesn't mean that he's breaking it. He's just taking advantage of a situation. It could be 20 people or a thousand people who made it instead of instead of Soros. It's, it's the underlying weakness that was the problem. He didn't create the weakness. He just benefited from the from its existence so um i, I like i, I, just, I just take like this is that, that's by the way alexandra that's not the unpopular opinion that's the popular opinion uh, well it is i mean for for many people uh especially if you could find them all on clubhouse um you know he's like this demonic person and he's he's really not and it's actually it tends to be a dog whistle for anti-semitic thought you know it's basically you know another jewish person is coming and taking over an economy and that is, all of that is false. I just want to make that clear. That's all false. It's all propaganda. And what he's done with currencies is legitimate and has been done by a number of other people, but he, they don't get the press because partly they're not as successful and partly because they're not also Jewish. So I'm just, just putting the claim out there. Yeah, that's I'm, not, I'm, um, I'm specifically telling you what the CCP says. And I would argue, I don't think the CCP is anti-Semitic. Oh, they, well. Okay. Okay. There's so that, they've okay. had strong partnerships. So that's a that, so Alexander, your point is spot on. We all can we need we need Everyone to separate those things said. as different. That's, that's yeah, yeah, most, yeah. No, totally. That's the most unconventional thing I've heard in this room in weeks. Well, yeah, but but the, the the point you're bringing up and and the point when you and and I'll just pick up on the word I think if I can remember Alexander you said about a, a legit like it, it was a he, he followed some kind of rational or was legitimate. You know, currency manipulation is a legitimate thing. The social cost 
that that had on millions of people is the issue. The power that has been amassed, or the, 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 the wealth that has been amassed by the biggest hedge funds the, the, and individuals, and when they do things like this, that is the big social cost issue. And it's, 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 they, it's allowed because our system supports people do it. And Alexander, I just, I just wanted to grab that one little point to make a note. This has nothing and, to do with And that's with... a fair point. Um, the yeah. issue there really is, um, and then we're looping back to crypto, is that that's about poor financial policies and the terrible cost that is the result of poor monetary and financial policy, which is actually one of the main drivers of initial use in, in Bitcoin and other forms of crypto because they're outside these monetary controls that are manipulated and um, and have such disastrous consequences when they fail. And to be you know to be fair, every single currency in history has failed so far. Right? There's nothing that we have to believe that every single at least fiat currency will fail in the future. And it a lot of it is because it's not so flexible and. Uh, populations change, economies change, economies change extremely fast, and monetary policy can't keep up with it. Um, and uh, and the population shift, along with you know the global impacts that that are extremely powerful and often more powerful in some countries than the internal market um, uh, issues that are that are impacting that monetary policy. So this is the problem is that you have a lot of monetary policy set up on basically like this um, sort of lordship system. And um, and the reality of society doesn't doesn't work that way. Um, and, and so you have a lot of currencies failing and there's nothing to indicate that any currency that is currently existing um, will will not fail in the future. They all do, right? C countries come in and, and go, the currencies um, exist and fall, and then people find more value in one currency versus another. There's another global currency. I will. I think, I think so. just to add about Soros, I think the reason he's controversial is because he's a far left political thinker and he gets the ire of the right he's a he's their favorite target so it's more about politics and him contributing to left-wing causes than i, I agree I, I he's, think he's incredibly or anything like I, I agree he's very he's one of uh hillary's biggest supporters at the so i he he just got incredibly close with the clintons and i think that's uh that i think that's the essence of your point evan yeah so um and and per the kind of globalist perspective that he has or whatever. But anyway, the the next article we got to get into, because I think we've only done three today. No, we've done two. We're on a roll. We've done, we've done two headlines and we're already two hours. We're supposed to actually finish now. We only got through yeah. two articles. Yeah. So Bloomberg says they have sources that Apple is accelerating the development of a fully autonomous electric car uh, with plans to debut it in 2025. Meta, formerly known as Facebook, says it's looking at how users from marginalized communities, particularly black people, experience its products and releases a paper on changes to how it uses U.S. demographic data. And the BBC is reporting on this saying that Facebook tells L.A. police to stop spying on users with fake accounts. That's kind of a separate headline, really. Uh, that police are making fake accounts to spy on people. 
and mm -mm, they wrote many blog posts themselves about this. Okay, next up is in a staff email, Phil Spencer, who is the uh, head of Xbox for Microsoft, says that he's evaluating Xbox's relationship with Activision Blizzard and will make adjustments. And um, what kind of adjustments are you going to make? I guess we will have to stay tuned to find out. And this is in response to the uh, kind of signature collection from team members at Activision Blizzard. There's reportedly a thousand signatures collected thus far asking for the CEO to step down, but without any um, ramifications if he doesn't. And so we're going to stay tuned on that drama. So keep that on the back burner. Well, I, th I think there is an opportunity here to kind of do what happened in Google, not necessarily like an uprising, but like an external audit. And there's many instances where there was a, a gender discrimination or um, basically like harassment and uh, these companies would approach Google and say, hey, look, we have this program here. You can pay for the program or it might just happen that you end up going to court about this whole thing. So you can either try to rehabilitate this issue or there can be more of a punitive approach. And I think uh, I think that's what all these companies are asking. I'm very curious to hear what Nintendo will say about this because that's kind of like the next one in line. Uh, and it's surprising that the American console was able or had a response before the other Japanese company. So uh, very interesting to see what will happen going forward. That's like carbon carbon offsets for sexual harassment. So next one is from Facebook expands tools to help advertisers avoid placement near sensitive news feed topics across news, politics, tragedy, conflict and debated social issues. So if you don't want your advertisement to be seen next to something controversial, there's now new tools to help avoid that. And the information says they have sources that Facebook is offering musicians and celebrities payments to host live audio rooms, which is Facebook vernacular for social audio, AKA their copy of Clubhouse. And sources say they're paying up to 50,000, Five zero fifty thousand dollars per session. That's amazing. And my friend Brian Solis, who's also a good friend of uh, Jeremiah Oyang's, uh, tweeted to say, "If you have to pay people to show up to your party, Facebook is offering creators up to fifty thousand dollars per session to host live audio rooms on the platform, plus a fee for guests of ten thousand dollars." to compete against Clubhouse. And let's see who who makes rooms over there in, in Facebook. Uh, although I, I barely use hey, Facebook. Tyler, let's go. I'm tempted. They're not, they're not offering me anything. That's the problem. So the... Uh, okay, <laughs> well, that's what for you, Tyler. Your is uh, music to my ears. So let's go. <laughs> so the next one is... A look at Open Connect, Netflix's in-house CDN, that means a content dis delivery network, that launched a decade ago and spans 17,000 servers across 158 countries. It's basically just a network of computers all over the planet so that 
when you request to watch Squid Game, it's only coming from a server down the street from you and not from San Francisco. It would be ridiculous to have the whole world pull their the files from San Francisco, so they distribute the content in a content uh, delivery network known as a CDN. Anyway, so that would be a really boring article to read, <laughs> reading about CDNs. The next one is uh, Media Tech announces the Dimensity well, 9000. Dimensity 9000 mobile chip, which uses TSMC's 4 nanometer process and supports 5G without the faster M-Wave standard Wi-Fi 6 Bluetooth 5.3. Okay, so some MediaTek has a new 4 nanometer process chip. Okay. Yeah, and they're going against uh, uh, the top players. They're going against the uh, 800 series and uh, the new Exynos. They're, they're not how, how does the performance about? compare? To Qualcomm, it's yeah. not showing yet, but it's they have four cores, like one performance core, three other multitasking uh, high performance cores, and uh, four uh, low power cores with ten GPU cores and some insane number of APUs. They they, they went all out. It's 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 an insane design if you take a look at it. Uh, it sounds good, but uh, I want to see some graphs that don't look like an Apple presentation where you're like, what is the axis? What are the units? So I, I'd want to see some hard benchmarks, but it's really exciting to see another competitor because the market one is very competitive in terms of designers. Not many people design chips nowadays. So if we can bring people designing their own chips, I think that's a good thing that dem democratizes yeah. the whole market overall and diversifies the risk because now there might be more demand to build more of these chips so somebody like TSMC might build another fab somewhere else. Yeah, and and uh, you know, MediaTek has always been known for like a low budget, uh, medium range at best. But this time they're they're heading or they're targeting the uh, top end uh, flagship. But here's the question: This is the million dollar question: Who is the customer? <laughs> we, I have no idea who's who's adopting this chip yet. Nobody has. Uh, there's no takers. They have a fantastic chip. We don't know which phone this is going to land into, and I don't want it to end up in I don't know Huawei or something like that. Okay. Next up, Flipkart in in it acquires online pharmacy startup and launches a healthcare vertical called Flipkart Health Plus. So your Walmart-backed Flipkart in India, it's a huge delivery company in India, is acquiring online pharmacy startup to enter the healthcare segment in India as an e-commerce battle intensifies in the world's second largest internet market of India. And here it comes. The All of the delivery companies are gonna get into healthcare in a huge way, just like Amazon's trying to get into healthcare in a very huge way in the US. Next. Did you see that? Um, oh, bro, just did you see also that CVS is, uh, which is a, a pharmacy chain here in the U.S. Um, uh, they just uh, they're closing about 90 stores and reconfiguring them to focus on um, healthcare. So they're actually moving um, farther into that model of um, of, of providing act like being a, a service provider. Uh, like like Walgreens was just doing shots and stuff like that, but now they're actually providing Wait, Alexander, uh, service. Yeah, they're, their... they're going more point of um like urgent care, right? I think so. Although no, no, the no, only delivery, thing delivery. is for urgent care, you need licenses that I didn't think that they had. No, so I, I don't know if they, if they do... care. I think it's primary care that they're going to because CVS already has those unit clinics. I thought that was 
Wal was that Walgreens or or, or no? It's CVS. No, it's CVS. CVS has, In uh, Phoenix, they, they have, yeah, yeah. CVS has nurse practitioners, which is to them is like almost the equivalent of a doctor on staff. They usually have like two or three. So instead of you going to the ER or going to trying to schedule an appointment, like if you have kids and you gotta get those sports physicals and you can't get them until whenever, you can go to CVS and they have like a a. a a slew of different services that you can go to as long as it's something that doesn't require a specialist like uh you know like an eye doctor or something they can do everything and prescribe you that's awesome yeah, is it yeah, is it lpns or mds do you know i nurse, don't know nurse practitioners are right yeah, yeah, yeah and, nurse practitioners. Assistants. they they can both prescribe drugs they're um, yeah, they're yeah, right doctor yeah Yep, yeah, right. I'm getting that at my primary care doctors now because I'm with one medical group. And if I can't get into my primary care doctor, I get the nurse practitioner or the physician's assistant that mm -hmm. practices with her. Yeah, I, I do it all the time. I get better treatment. Yeah. Yeah, this was a yeah but there's a very, very big difference between LPNs, um, even RNs, LPNs, and um, and NPs and LPN physicians. Is the lowest rung of the ladder. Well, I, sorry. Uh, um, the sorry. You are the. I have a kid who's talking in my ear right now. Um, the there's a big difference between uh, the um, the nurse practitioners and physicians, and they're not the same. They actually do have. Well, no, to no, no, no. Of course, they're not physicians the same. about stuff. So. Yeah. So just just so people don't think that they're equivalent. When you're seeing a nurse practitioner in an office. They're still consulting with physicians. They can prescribe, but they're still consulting with physicians. So that's why I want to know: is there a physician there? No, there's that no is overseeing there. it, or is no. it just? Um, but they could also do that or... consultation virtually, yeah. um, Alexander. I've seen them do that, where they are now permitted, in, and I don't know how that works with licensing, but they can actually do that. They can turn back and do that over a Zoom. Yeah. Is that what, is that what CVS is doing? Yeah, Dr. Dinesh is actually working on this kind of stuff, right? To have mm -hmm. remote care. Yeah, this is what his clinics do. Yeah, exactly. we have, my well, doctor does my, remote care. So my husband's a primary care physician, and and he has to do remote care on some level just because of the whole um, the whole thing with the pandemic. It's very different than seeing patients in person. Mm -hmm. And again, like that, what I want to know is not necessarily by Zoom, right? I want to know is there oversight of the nurses um, from a physician in the CVSs. No, I just no, want to no, know that no if there is that. If there isn't, there's there no, isn't. But I just... So there's no physician on site. What happens is, and this happened about 10, 15 years ago when everybody, was, there wasn't enough doctors. It was about trying to get people within different communities of disparity to be able to go to the doctor conveniently because a lot of times medical services were way too expensive. So they're actually pretty inexpensive there. They have a physician, they, they have a pharmacy or a medical wing within CVS where the, uh, the services have been vetted out by physicians, like a physician's board. And then they've assigned nurse practitioners who have, I guess in their world have, there, there's more nurse practitioners and doctors who can, have a part-time job or full-time job working at these various CVSs on these particular services who have the, and they have these particular um, responses or uh, two. So that's how it works. And, I, and if it's something more serious, they're gonna tell you to go to a specialist or go to the doctor from there if it's something they cannot do. And uh, this is Heyman. Sorry. So it, there is a trend now uh, towards moving to uh, it, like uh, basically helping the other professionals in our uh, medical sphere 
from uh, to prescribe. So nurse practitioners, uh, physician assistants, even pharmacists, there's uh, will be allowed to prescribe in certain jurisdictions around the world and also in North America to prescribe certain uh, things without the need for a, a medical physician. Uh, because these are routine stuff that does not require that much uh, sort of uh, assessments and so forth. And that's that's a trend now, sort of to alleviate the stresses on uh, the physicians and also the healthcare system. Because it, you don't really have to put the patient through so many hurdles just to get maybe uh, treatment for a headache or uh, gastrointestinal problems that are routine, right? You don't have to force them to go and see the doctor to get the note. So yeah, this is a trend. Sorry? Yeah, it, UTIs and, and um, some minor antibiotic stuff. Yeah. Ooh, uh, antibiotics is a messy one, but yes, uh, there is a trend. But there's a, the problem with antibiotics is also um, basically making sure that the patient absolutely needs it because there's a trend in, the uh, especially now, with, like the North America European models have moved away from prescribing antibiotics. But more and more in the world, we'll see that antibiotic misuse is there and there's antibiotic resistance. So that might be an issue, but that's happening a lot now, right? Antibiotic prescription in Thailand, for instance, you could go and pick up an antibiotic on the store, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, one of, that's one of the biggest uh, challenges in the telemedicine world right now is that physicians who practice for the you know the big players in telemedicine are evaluated on their productivity and on their patient satisfaction and it takes a long time to explain to someone why they don't need an antibiotic so there is an extreme proliferation of prescription for unnecessary antibiotics that is a consequence of that incentive misalignment with clinical outcomes and clinical quality um, and the epidemic of multiple resistant bacteria is getting worse fast and these prescribing patterns a big part of that the other thing i just want to add in the context of the uh, level of licensure and the level of care i i actively participated in the early uh, trials at both Walmart and Target CVS for their in-store clinics. And there's a lot of virtue in that whole space and allowing people to practice at the top of their licenses, the term of art, um, is really a good path to pursue. The outstanding feature, uh, the missing feature um, in this whole infrastructure, at least in the U.S., um, for the most part, there are exceptions in value-based care organizations, and there are a of care. So when you have people practicing in isolation on a teledoc or an American well, and they're seeing the patient, and they're rated on patient satisfaction, and so they give antibiotics like candy, um, they get no follow-up uh, generally on what happened to the individual. They, there's no uh, awareness of the impact of the overprescribing of antibiotics for um, the resistance in the bacteria that are circulating in any particular community. And so there's too many open loops and letting people practice at the top of their license within a larger framework where there's feedback loops and, and quality oversight of how all the different players on the healthcare team 
are serving their role effectively and referring appropriately um, is really missing uh, for the most part, not entirely, but missing for the most part in the infrastructure. And I have to say that what uh, Dr. Danish is doing um, is, is um, you know, really trying to address those very kinds of issues in very creative ways. So there's, there's hope on the horizon, but as of right now, a lot of these initiatives are fall short because they don't have the integration and coordination of care necessary to have the closed loop on quality feedback. And, and that's a big problem. Uh, Tyler, can I make an announcement? Sure. Okay, um, we're starting the room that's pinned on top, Unpacking Startup Founders Challenges. Uh, this is a, a second room after the Karma Club uh, that Dr. Francine hosted last week uh, regarding the founders' health. So because during that session, we... There are, there are a lot of uh, issues as brought up. So today we'll, uh, we'll be unpacking them with uh, experienced entrepreneurs and also um, uh, attorney. So uh, please join us. We're going to start the room now. And this is also uh, Regina, the wife of Chris Jung, will also be attending. And this will be the last push of the GoFundMe. Uh, and the funeral service will actually be uh, happening in two days' time. So please come over to support the room uh, once this uh, tech news around the world is finished. Okay, Tyler, see you there. Okay. Thank you. One, one last thing about CBS. Um, CBS shares rose up by 1% after the announcement, mainly because the stores that they're closing are stores stuck in the 80s and the 90s. Um, they have not been updated or anything. So a lot of people are not are already not shopping there and they're probably losing money. So the market took it positively. Alrighty. Next up is an announcement from... I believe it was Google with some robots. Yeah. Um, Alphabet's X Everyday Robots says that it now has a fleet of one more than 100 robot prototypes that are autonomously performing tasks like wiping tables around its office. This is okay. where this, this, yep. It, well, this means, uh, this means that everybody with a job under $20 will be unemployed in the next two years. So inside X's mission to make robots boring. Um, and there's a photo. Uh, Cheryl, do you have this one pinned at the top? She's she left. She left. She left. The other so I will pin it at the top for you because this is super important shit because I've told you, I've warned you that this was coming, that Google is understands there's a tremendous, huge opportunity, which is the following, that the cost of the physical hardware robotic arms, which we just had a gentleman in this room on stage, at, well, just below the stage at the beginning of the room, who's doing robotic arm barista cafes in Tokyo at the train stations. And the point is that these robotic arms are getting very, very cheap, $1,000. That's no longer the friction. And that's way cheaper than hiring physical humans to do lots of things like flip hamburgers and french fries and do cleaning tables and all kinds of stuff. And they're not just uh, these arms also have wheels. Now, if you look at this this uh, article that I just pinned to the top of the room, you will see just click on that. It's a wired article. And the first thing you'll see is this one-armed robot opening a door, walking in through the door with its wheels and its cameras, and then you scroll down. And then you see there's a whole bunch of these cute little robots with little wheels, 
with ro single robotic arms. And you can watch, scroll down a little further, and you will see this robot use a squeegee to clean a table at a restaurant. So, as somebody who owns a restaurant, um, how long before, it's no longer the cost. Cost is no longer the issue. This is way, 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 way cheaper than having humans. The question is, how long will it take me and how much investment in time will it take me to train the robot? And this is what Google's all about here, which is they're trying to, the chi China understands that Sweden is the biggest maker of robots. That's the company um, ABB. And ABB is still quite expensive because it's Scandinavian. China understands this. So they're copying ABB's robots, making them for one fifth the price at $1,000. The problem is how to program the robotic arms. And Google sees, ah, that's what we do really well. We don't make the smartphone. We provide the operating system. So if they provide a, an operating system or training system for these single arm robots so that Uncle Bobby and Aunt Susie can buy one of these single arm robots and train it to squeegee the tables in their restaurant and make that really, really simple, bye-bye humans very quickly. All of a sudden, all of them all at once. So uh, that's why this article might be more interesting than you first realized, because this is what Google's doing and they're being very quiet about it and any glimpses that we have into it are very interesting. And so this robot squeegeeing a table, clean, properly cleaning a table is very interesting indeed. It opens doors, walks through doors that are closed. That's another breakthrough. And a very interesting article uh, worthy of your time, no doubt. Um, I wonder if uh, I wonder if this is related to uh, a robot from a few years ago called Baxter, which you can actually physically move the arm of the robot and articulate the the grip and so on uh, just by physically moving the robot, and it would learn from that kind of behavior. I wonder if it transitioned to something more computer vision based, where you know it can perhaps mimic what you're doing. That would be kind of the holy grail of uh, of robotics at this point, because the thousand dollar robot, yeah, that's coming. That's definitely coming. Like we've seen that with Boston Dynamics. Wow, amazing! Spot can do all these things, and then a Chinese company, Xiaomi, comes out with a much cheaper one, right? So definitely, uh, the power is in the scaling from countries like China for this. But the software is definitely questionable. Oh, so it says Google and now X has been obsessively <laughs> pursuing the vision for more than a decade, leaving the everyday robots team is Norwegian-born engineer Hans-Peter Bondmo, an engineer and entrepreneur who joined X in 2015 and has and had to make sense of cacophony of robot acquisitions by the former lead Andy Rubin, who, by the way, was the creator of Android, the operating system of every phone that's not an iPhone. So Andy Rubin, after selling Android to Google, started doing the robots at Google. So guess you can kind of connect the dots a little bit. Anyway. Tyler, uh, so it's yeah. a good point. Whoever said China. So to keep to keep the masses happy and not revolting. I'm just I'm just wondering, you know, when you're not you, but what, what, with the idea that robots are going to start just, you know, I'm not, the timing of this is the question, I think that that's 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 the point. Um, but but what is going to be the the way that the CCP manages handles 
the emergence of a low-cost robot being able to do these rote tasks. Because if you're if it's like you dropped out. Labor. I mean, he's. He, what 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 are they going to do? Are they going to embrace robotics and then they're going to have you know all these humans? What what are they going to do? Right? I mean that's a that's an interesting uh, question to ponder because because this is not ever you know hey it's cheap let's just do it. I mean th there's going to be other pieces to that to that that are going to need to be addressed in this particular case. Um. My, I believe people are going to need to, and this is why I was such a fan of that gentleman who joined us today uh, with the kind of uh, Slavic last name. Where did he go? I forget his name. Um, that people are going to need to rewild themselves and need to learn to live half the land again as we used to <laughs> and learn how to grow their own food with their own water and energy. And or they're going to become dependent and homeless and need aid because they're, you know, they've domesticated themselves. As he said it perfectly, people are going to have to rewild themselves and learn to just move into anywhere and start growing but, but, food. So, so Tyler, the, the, yeah. the, great, the greatest migration in world history was it, it happened over the past 15 years or 10 to 15 years when... Chinese in the eastern cities yeah. migrated from west to the big cities yes. to elevate their income, yes. right? So, so, so that's I'm, I'm kind of like rather than going to the thirty year plus time frame, which I the rewilding. I think I I kind of threw that in the conversation a while ago too. That that's we're we're all going to be forced to do that. But this whole automate, you know, this this five hundred dollar, you know, little robot that can bust tables. Or something, and, and a bunch of other. I'm just really curious. It's a real head scratcher, and in really intriguing conversation, I would think to really think through all the different aspects of how, how you know, CCP and other countries are going to deal with that. Well, the, China's going to be one of the easiest because those those people you're talking about who moved into you know moved eastward in China from the farms into the cities, they can go back to working on farms very easily, and that's not going to. Uh, they, they have the skills. They know how to survive and get by. It, what worries me is what's going to happen to the 40 million Americans who can no longer afford their rent and yet also have our third generation domesticated cats who, you know, they aren't, they didn't grow up farming. They ha And the idea, you know, is absurd to them. It's beneath them. They would rather die frozen on the side of the, un uh, underneath a freeway overpass than figure out how to grow a fucking carrot. So, which, which, how big? Will. So, so if, if I if I may, I'm really curious because I was a first generation uh, cat whose first job was bussing tables and all these things too, right? So, I am curious about how big that market segment is that you're talking about, third generation versus, and it's not even just generation. It's just kind of, I, I know what you're saying, and I'm, I am curious how big of a, a segment that is here in the states and. Versus the working families that the generation and a half of Reaganomics and complicit Democrats have gutted unions and and you know dot 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 right the corporate the corporate uh, citizenship of corporations I mean all that crap so I'm, I'm just I am I am curious to know 
you know, what the effect would be on working families that are struggling because, because of just all this, the, uh, the, this, the, this structure that we had that created the middle class that has been gutted. Okay. So, I mean, it's, well, it's, it's, fa- it's fascinating to think about. How about this? I mean, this, the education program, the curriculum that students are taught is very applicable towards um, careers and jobs in cities. Uh, when those jobs no longer exist and you need to learn how to grow food and you know how to manage land and water so you, you can survive, I think the education curriculum will shift more towards how to work for yourself on a piece of land and become unfuckable as I am. So wait a minute. Do you think that do you think that the education system will actually promote that that uh, I think that I think education? the, the I, th- I hope that people will kind of they, there will be a demand for it educationally. People are going to realize uh, there's no point in me learning how to be a good Best Buy employee because those jobs are gone. What I need is to learn how to grow food. Uh, and I need to learn that right now. And I think the market will meet that demand. I believe the supply of people willing to teach that whether it come from. And by the way, it exists today in YouTube videos, by the way. So anyone really not anybody, but. For the most part, how to uh, do hands-on instruction. I think governments aren't going to have a choice. They're either going to have pitchfork rioting protesters who are going to burn down the Capitol, or they're going to have to teach them. No, no, it's fine. You go out. Uh, here's a here's some national park land. We've got millions of acres of it. Here's your, you know, hundred square meters, way more than you could ever use to grow all the food you need. What, and here, and here's I, how you do I it. I honestly believe that policies that are currently in place speak drastically against that very thing. I mean, this is this is something that, you know, we've talked about before in this room is, you know, we have the technology now for your house to be completely off grid. Yes. And instead of instead of promoting that, right, with subsidies and all that kind of stuff for 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 families to, you know, buy into solar and geothermals and those types of things. However, when you live in specific areas where there are HOAs that are, that are, their bylaws are completely against that. They don't let you have the wind turbine. They don't let you have the solar panels. It's against their community standards. It's a, it's a corporate entity that's deciding whether or not you can or you can't because they've already negotiated the power structure, the power grid with how much this um, development's going to produce for the energy companies. To me, Everything about what you just said is counterintuitive to what the state would tell people to go and do, mm-hmm. period. And I think yeah. the pitchforks is probably what's going to happen first. And what will those pitchforks get them? Well, not nothing, they'll, but Correct. they'll expend, expend well, they'll, they'll energy. They'll burn down the Capitol. <laughs> yeah, yeah the Capitol won't be there. Right. Yep. This is also yep. an opportunity. I, I don't think necessarily it will happen, but it's an opportunity for things like Snapchat and TikTok to step up. Because they have a direct feed into the following generation's brain of what to make relevant. And to some part, you know, things like, um, um, I can't remember the, 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 the Nordic young lady's uh, name, 
um tala you always purposefully mispronounce it but you, you can see how so that's that's it's now cool it's becoming cool thankfully to care about the environment and to care about your impact and if you can if these platforms either we can use these platforms and turn them or the platforms themselves can direct conversation towards making these kind of things comfortable and entertaining and viral like make it cool to grow your own fucking food like if you do that then the next generation will care about it make it cool to, I mean, we've already seen a resurgence of things like retro clothes making and stuff and making your own clothes and modifying your own mm -hmm. clothes and, you know, make all of that kind of stuff cool. And then, you know, half the work's done for you because I kind of agree with some of the sentiments here that you can't necessarily rely on, on um, state-funded education to react and change fast enough. Hey, Carl, it, there's a couple of, like, uh, contingencies on a lot of this stuff. So I'm, I'm a hearing what everybody's saying there's just a lot of different factors um do people have the space to do it do they have the yards the the outdoor space the parks as you're saying it's great when um, communities can repurpose areas in their you know land in their areas which is phenomenal and teach it and make it cool um you know the outdoor projects um i have a yard and at the beginning of covid i you know i'm, I'm pretty good with planting and my garden was um woefully inadequate um, but uh, to make it, it is harder than people think. So you're right. It takes some work and it takes um, quite a bit to make a small production. The other one is in the making it cool. You'll see that now there, there are a lot of products with the indoor tiered gardens, um, just all over the social media platforms, right? So grow these. And of course they show the bountiful output of it in small space. Um, so they are leaning towards making it cool for people and bringing that, uh, bringing that home to people. That's so fun that I think the challenge is we're in a race against time. I mean, the, the best and brightest are literally in automation and robotics now and AI. And just for example, the Tesla robot, which everyone kind of made fun of as sort of being vaporware. I mean, look, you know, Tesla, they're, they're going to build an autonomous Android and this thing is going to blow our minds and it's going to be put to work, you know, first in Tesla factories and in space and, then in our workplaces, I don't know if we have time for all this. I really don't, but thanks. Well, it's just just the best guess um, as to how it'll play out. But anyway, um, the next uh, one, yeah? Sorry. Um, yeah, I was just also going to say, I think we should not underestimate the, um, the youth uh, and how they're born into technology and um, their ability to understand it a lot better than uh, uh, people who didn't grow up with it um, and actually going towards that uh, as as pretty much a, a lifestyle and not only that but entrepreneurship like there there's an unbelievable amount of millionaires that were created just in 2020 um, and they're all young uh, people who who started technology businesses off of the backs of uh, TikTok, Instagram and all of that stuff so I, I think that um, there's going to be a lot of coders and, and um, different level jobs that are going to be birthed out of this and that are currently, um, which a lot of them I know. Uh, so, you know, I think we um, don't give a lot of credit to the shift that probably will take place towards these different technologies and entrepreneurship, having your own business and, and being able to produce yourself. So, Tyler, just, uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I was going to just bring up the robotic side of things. So, you know, I think, uh, as always, we overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term. And I think that 
what people are not realizing perhaps in the short term is how nascent the field is currently. I mean, uh, the easiest way to see how early we are is to look at the walking challenge that's done every year. Uh, and you'll see robots literally crumbling with, uh, you know, slight changes in the ground. Um, and so, you know, as the ground gets softer or harder or more rocky, like all of these incredible dancing robots that we see uh, suddenly start, can't walk. Uh, it's a hilarious uh, challenge. It's one thing to make something work once. It's another to make it work in a dynamic environment. So I'd be very surprised. Uh, and I understand Evan's point around uh around Tesla Android robot, but having worked on robots now. But doctor, I mean, have, you, have you seen, have you seen Boston Dynamics robot doing parkour? I, I, mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I know that we're, we're in this, this great acceleration. So what used to be so short term is now like next month. <laughs> so Evan, you know, I don't know if you know this, but like I literally, we literally work on robots and we're in the final, we're finalists for the X prize. I'm telling you right now, all of that is done once. And what you're not seeing is a million times it fails. And yeah, check it, out and, Dan, to have them check out that same clip where they are dancing. It is Boston Dynamics. It is all those robots. There's about 200 um, blooper reels of what those robots do. Right. No, but guess what they're guess what they're doing? They're 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 learning and they're using Agreed. machine learning to Agreed. improve at a, at a rate that is unprecedented. What I'm, what I'm, so, what yeah, I'm trying to that, like a thousand steps leads to one proper step. You know exactly. So what's happening right now, and that's what I was trying to get to, is that what's happening right now is that you are, we're starting to train them on a bunch of uh, dynamic environments, but the challenge is that the way that robots learn is very different than how neural networks in general learn, right? So deep learning is very different from reinforcement learning. There has been something that's happened in the last three years that has really made uh, bridge the two called deep reinforcement learning. And if you wanna learn more about it, go to Ben Tristam's rooms, he'll talk to you about it all day. DRL is the future. It is coming. We are using it here at Resilient. People across the world are using it. That's what is the core focus of the Android that's being built uh, at Tesla. But the challenge here is we're still pretty far away. So again, Evan, I'm going to repeat myself, but I'm going to say it again. People overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term. I don't think any of us who are in robotics believe that in 20 years, most regular day-to-day -day jobs will not be automated out. I think most people in robotics believe that. Are you but worried about being don't... replaced by a robot, Dr. Danish? <laughs> I'm, I'm not here. worried about I'm... it at all. I mean, you're like, not, you know, in, the in the short term, you're not, but how about the, the, the medium term, whatever that means? I think, I think that in 50 years, 50, five zero, I think people will think it was barbaric that humans were cutting other humans in the operating room. I think people will think it's bar bar barbaric. It would be crazy. It's sort of like, uh, compare that to uh, bloodletting, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, in the early 1900s. I mean, it's, it, it would be unheard of to do that. I truly believe that in my heart. I know, I know that to be true because the precision that comes, again, today, what they don't have is flexibility, but what they do have is precision, which is repeatability. There's a difference between accuracy and precision. Precision is they do the same thing over and over, over and, and they do it do. really, really well. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is, you know, robotics is going to make certain types of things better. The problem with robotics is not precision. It's knowing context and knowing what to do in that context. That's where we're not at right now. It's coming. The one thing I was going to say is that uh, what's exciting about this whole space is that we are all worried about it now. 
which means that we can actually get ahead of it now because there's another big, big thing that's coming. And I hope I'm not conflating uh, the two things uh, for people. If people don't understand happy to discuss it separately, don't want to take over the stage so much. But Web3 is the best thing that's ever happened to robotics because the one challenge with robotics has been getting data in context that you can access all the time. With Web3, everybody has access to all of the pieces of information, not just the big players who may or may not use that information correctly, the whole community does. And what happens is now you're gonna start seeing the development of new infrastructures. Imagine robot operating system or ROS on a Web3 platform. Can you imagine if everybody could use all of that training data from wow. every single robot that's out there? It changes everything. That's what people yep. are super excited about. And I think that's what changes everything. That's my opinion, at least. Absolutely. I agree. This is actually what I was waiting for. I was uh, wondering if that was out. And this, this is where I think it just reiterates the best and the brightest minds on the planet, like Dr. Danish, are working on AI and robotics. And I think it, as a knowledge worker, I feel pretty comfortable, as do doctors and others on this stage. But you know, if your job is to say, do you want fries with that? And uh, do you want your burger, you know, medium rare? I mean, I mean the, these jobs are, are so at risk. Anyway. Yeah, it, this is John, if I can, if, if, if I can add to uh, some of what Dr. Danish said, which I completely agree with. And 10 years ago, I gave talks on the future of physicians vis-a-vis -vis AI and robotics. And it's been my belief and remains my belief <clears throat> that the role of a skilled trained physician um, that can't be replaced by AI or robotics is the ability to engage in shared decision making with individuals where there's more than one legitimate option for an individual that have different um, vectors in terms of uh, cost or side effects or risk or duration um, that that being able to have that discussion and elicit the values of the individual, the goals of the individual, and do that overlay on the option set and help them reach the decision that's right for them is, I think, an irreducible role of the human in the medical profession. Um, but otherwise, I, th I think, as Dr. Danish said, uh, it's, it's going to be uh, looked back on as barbaric so much of what we do today because there's so much unnecessary variability that doesn't conform with the best science that we already have. Okay. Next up is U.S. regulators approve a rule requiring banks to report cyber attacks within 36 hours if they disrupt operations or impact the U.S. financial system. And then we get into a whole bunch of boring shit, so we will skip all that. And I think we need to stop there here at the top of the hour. Um, and then what's today? Friday. So we will meet again this time zone tomorrow. And I got a, an absurd amount of tweets I have saved for that. So that look forward to that. So thank you, everybody, for another Tech News Around the World in another week, and we will see you next time. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you, Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Bye, everybody.